So on an uh, semi-related note, I got access to Dolly yesterday ah. because I was on the wait list. I actually applied to be on the wait list the other day as well. <laughs> I did it like within four hours of them like putting it up because I was like mm. weirdly online at that time. It was one of the few nights I had insomnia. Mm. So by dumb luck, I was just there early. So I think I got it before anyone else I know. Okay, I've been cool. using it. And one of the things I've done is I was like, can you give me a dark cathedral in the style of Minecraft? <laughs> I can send you some of the images it generated. I'd be interested to see what it came up with. I imagine there's a fair amount to draw on in the Minecraft style oeuvre. <laughs> yeah, like, I've been doing fun ones. I'm very disappointed because it won't let me use controversial celebrities. I wanted to do trail <laughs> cam footage of Donald Trump eating a cow. Careful, they'll uh, ban you from they the were API. Like, they were literally, there was a little message that says, this violates our terms, please don't do this again. And I was like, ah, oh, that's fair. I wasn't even going to like do it for anything bad. I just thought it'd be a funny image. Uh, yeah. I can't um, blame them. It's the right call, but God damn it. It yeah, would have been I mean, funny. After, like, what was it? Um, Tay, Microsoft's Twitter chatbot, and all the other mm -hmm. debacles of that nature. <laughs> a lesson was learned. No. At least by them, right? Not by any of the people who don't care. <laughs> and, you know, replicating that kind of machine learning project is a thing people like to do and they have less constraints so we'll see how long it lasts <laughs> i mean hmm. you heard that there's already one called mini dolly that was made by one ukrainian or eastern european dude uh over the course of like a few weeks by trying to reverse engineer what he saw from dolly and he made it open to the public. It's not nearly as good as Dolly, but considering mm. it was one dude by himself, it's very impressive. Mm. And he has none of those stipulations. So people have been putting out pictures like Nancy Pelosi on like uh, trail cam, and she looks like El, El Chupacabra. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. And speaking of Tay, that has inadvertently led to some interesting news recently. So mm. uh, Google not wanting a Tay debacle has a had a researcher whose only job was to converse with their new chat like AI bot to make sure it wasn't becoming prejudice. Hmm. And uh, he was the one who recently made that big thing to New York Times and the Washington Post. He's like, I'm pretty sure it's sentient. Really? That, that's his background. <laughs> and uh, it's all because of Tay being too racist, because that's what happens when you learn on Twitter. Hmm. Um, by the way, my personal opinion on this is I don't think he is correct, but my opinion is I don't think there's going to, everyone's waiting for this clear demarcation and I don't think it's going to happen. Evolution didn't have a clear demarcation. It was a slow process. Now with AI, it's going to happen much faster, but I think it is going to be a gradual one. So my threshold is when 30% of scientists say there is a good chance that AIs are sentient. I will immediately start advocating for AI rights. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's hard to hard to know with the sentience line, right? That's where 
I mean, like, I don't like thinking of a, as a demarcation of sentience or not. I like comparing mm -hmm. them to animals because even if their neural architecture is completely different, it's at least a useful standard of complexity. Mm -hmm. And like the AIs we have now are pretty damn close to the complexity of the neural network of a cat. Um, and like, I don't give cats voting rights, but I mm -hmm. treat cats with respect. Like I, I don't I think they have a level of agency and like on the continuum of animal intelligence, you eventually get to things like pigs, parrots, elephants and dolphins who, in my opinion, should have voting rights. Like we know we can teach them to like communicate with us the basics. Personally, I would love to see the first elephant governor of Uganda. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, we, we had a discussion of it like this the other day, right? We were talking about the mm -hmm. distinction between um experience and self-awareness uh and kind of the yes. sort of architectural questions around consciousness as they it, it, it's not necessarily just complexity but also um it's uh, a self-referential nature i think yes, that's what the book godel mm. escher bach tries to mm. point at mm. that that self-referentiality is a big part of what makes something go from an intelligence experience machine mm. to a sentient object with a self-reflection capability mm. to self-modify as it were yeah a lens that so. can see its own flaws mm. uh but we, we don't really seem to have a uh sort of generalized coherent theory of what when that, that happens yeah, what, what that is when that happens what the criteria are for that so I, in, I, it's so weird because in that discussion i told you i have seen it happen in real time hmm. but i can't articulate what happened like the story I mean, for the listeners is i was with a friend and we were outside on a sunny day her cat had recently had kittens and I was contemplating the fact that in nature there are no reflective surfaces, so cats don't normally do that. But one of her kittens stumbled upon the car mirror that was on the ground and had like a moment where she was like, is this another cat? And then realized it was her. And like it was literally I saw this animal gain a like level of self-awareness in that moment as it looked at its own paws and then looked in the mirror. And it was so strange to observe as a third party. And then it did cute kitten things and like strutted its stuff and whatnot. But like, it was such an odd moment to witness. But if you asked me to articulate what happened mathematically or scientifically, I'd be like, I don't know, pixie dust. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that it's an interesting thing because we see it in, in the emergence of um, like self-awareness in children as well. And then theory of mm -hmm. mind as another component, right? The ability to to model other Emulate agents. Emulate others. Yeah. yeah. It's... Uh, and I think by the way, that theory a... of mind is why mm -hmm. I don't think anything that isn't predatory or symbiotic can never become sentient in evolution, maybe in uh, AI, but never in nature. Mm. Uh, when you say symbiotic, uh, do you also include perhaps some degree of um, cooperative behaviors that uh, I suppose you, you might not necessarily yes. need to be a uh a symbiote to another organism that's sort of a different genotype to your own substantially uh but in a population of cooperating organisms of some kind even if they're not yeah doing so for predation yeah because uh the theory i've heard is if you're an herbivore 
you only need to be smart enough to avoid danger and to mm. know where the foods are, mm. like where it grows. Um, but if you're a carnivore or an omnivore, you must be smart enough to emulate your prey. Mm -hmm. So predators are always somewhat smarter. And it goes even one step further with omnivores because an omnivore has to be curious as well, because as they move to new environments, they have to constantly be saying like, can I eat this or is this poisonous? Mm. Yep. So that, that is kind of a tangent on where I think evolution pushes these things in general. But I like I think a symbiotic relationship could also happen where you need to emulate something significantly different from you so that you end up forming that theory of mind, which is why I'm worried that an AI wouldn't be able to do that unless it had a like right now the AI emulates us or tries to emulate our actions and our data, I should say. Hmm. But it doesn't really care. Its life isn't on the line. It, there's no threat to improve it hmm. or benefit to improving it from the AI's perspective. It doesn't get rewarded either. Yeah, and it's not, I mean, the, the current things like um, the big language models are not even really... Uh, they're not modeling us explicitly, right? The thing that they're modeling is the, you know, the structure of our language, right? Anything that's modeling us is implicit in that structure rather than being a uh, a thing that they're attempting to model directly, uh, which I think is another um, kind of uh, important point of difference, right? Yeah, and you're right. Like, it's not modeling us. It's modeling our information we're giving it. It's kind of like, yeah, the way I would describe it is actually very similar to the book, The Docidae Experiment, where mm -hmm. in that book, another Frank Herbert book, and uh, if this podcast lasts, you guys should get used to it. I, I like <laughs> Frank Herbert a lot. But um, in that book, he talks about a planet called Docidae, and the there are two species, humans and these weird frog people called the Gaukin who live on it. And they're like part of a horrible experiment where they've been trapped on this planet that is absolutely like terrible for life. Everything is either addictive or like poisonous. And it's like an experiment to see how far evolution can be pushed in a society. Hmm. Well, they got their memories wiped, so they had no idea. They just lived there for generations, but they looked up and they saw that there was this weird shimmering effect and all the rockets stopped. So they made some deductions about this and they were like, oh, we were not evolved here naturally. And clearly there is an outside force that is keeping us here. And we only are able to get data about this force by inferring things about what they allow us to have. And so in many ways, the AI are like the people in Docidae in this story. They don't actually know us. There is a significant barrier of experience there. They're mm -hmm. just getting the data we give them in specific channels and not all of it at once and able to contextualize it. And so they have to like piecemeal figure out things. By the way, the people in Docidae do eventually get out and it's horrific for the galaxy which is another reason why when I read Yudkowsky's thing about the box, I was not surprised at all. It's like, yeah, that makes complete sense. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And it's um, the, the 
um, shadows on the wall and Socrates's cave, and like there's many similar uh, points of you know, discussion of indirection when thinking about those things. It's uh, oh, actually, that relates to some history. So my friend uh, Andrew is a philosophy major with a background in anthropology. One of the things I did not realize until he told me is that people used to do shadow puppet shows as a form of historical storytelling in ancient Greece. Hmm. So the analogy of Plato's cave isn't supposed That's to be an analogy. It was a literal thing. Like it actually happened. Hmm. Those were not analogies. Those were historical accounts. And we actually have evidence because we have Greek era like carbon dating of paintings and like stuff uh, from caves. Like they painted the scenery essentially. Hmm. Which explains why the uh, the metaphor is exactly what it is, right? <laughs> because the the retelling of a historical event is going to have some liberties taken. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I recently heard a truly fantastic analogy. Someone mm -hmm. was talking to me about how we're all becoming siloed in our own like ideological bubbles hmm. and they pointed out I'll, I'll have to find an art the article about it and it's like yeah we don't need to learn from other people they're probably wrong and my oh. the podcast i was listening to went into a furious rant they're like this is like boarding up the cave the entrance of plato's cave and letting everyone choke on carbon monoxide <laughs> and i was like that is such a beautiful analogy <laughs> a plus yep yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's it's and the, the the degree to which even like language is ending up being siloed, kind of the like different political groups getting different aesthetics, and it, it's it, it's it's it just seems to be getting worse, especially in American politics. <laughs> it's not like it's any better. Uh, well, it's like it's much better in many other places, but uh, yeah. I, I mean, mean the, I would say, I like Peter Zion. I think his analysis is correct. And he says, and I agree with him, that America has gone through seven such transitions. Now, every single time we say, wow, we were so mean to each other. That was so weird. Why were we like that? Let's never do that again. And then we do it again, like two generations later. Um, yep. I like to think of it as when you have a car, you need to get oil changes regularly. And that's because no matter, even if you put premium engine fuel in, there's always a little bit of crud and it builds up and you need to clean it out. Mm -hmm. Well, you can think of the quality of the people in your government as the fuel mm -hmm. and corruption and grift is kind of the crud that builds up. And so you need an oil change regularly, usually once every like 30 years or so. But from my perspective, America as a country is a country that's been using the worst quality diesel in an engine that is not designed for it. And we've ignored the check engine light for yeah. like 110 years now. <laughs> and the real I mean, I don't blame the founders. They were doing something truly revolutionary. Like I'm a conservative at heart. I respect the work they did. But just like the first generation of cell phones were terrible and everyone else got to benefit from their mistakes and fix it. Every other nation state that made a constitution afterwards looked at America and said, yeah, we'll take the 80% that works and just change this 20% that's broken. Hmm. And you do that enough times and like everyone else just has a better system than us. 
Uh, I mean, I don't know about everyone else. I mean, a, a few of A lot the... of our peer nations. Yeah, many like, of our peer yeah. nations mm. are much, much better than us because yeah. they used... They learned from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. And we. Yeah. the worst part is we don't have a really good way to do amendments. Like Errol Heiberg, uh, the other council member, brought up that Germany has had like 60-some amendments to its constitution since the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. And America is like, ah, oh, we got 22. We're fine. And let's not go too crazy now. Yeah. I mean, and it's it, uh, the British system lacks any concept of like hierarchy and law right all law is on the same tier so there's no such thing as a constitutional distinction it's just the most recent law is the highest effectively uh so we don't have that kind of uh it, it has pluses and minuses uh it means that there's more risk every law becomes an amendment in a by mm. comparison to america like every if you have a new law but it it's, just it's also everything. to it's also easier to get rid of stuff that's a problem, right? So like we don't have your kind of second amendment issue. <laughs> so at least, do you want me to tell you? Thereof. Yeah. So mm. this is actually really interesting. The conversation went here. So in that same book, the Dosidai experiment, you get a lot of xenopsychology of these weird frog people, the Galkin, and they have like a semi like religious view of law like mm. their great frog god gave them their first set of laws and it's part of their mythology mm -hmm. and as such they have the highest standards so everyone in the galaxy uses theirs and the reason is they have figured out a way to disincentivize a lot of the bad behavior mm. here are some of frank herbert's ideas one you aren't allowed to have lawyers it's illegal <laughs> Um, because mm. think about it like this. How do you make a name for yourself in any profession? It's by going to the edge of that profession and pushing the boundaries and breaking new ground mm. in every other, in, in every other field. That's great. But what does that mean in the field of law? It means literally pushing the laws to be accepting more and more illegal things like the yeah. very incentive structure of lawyers means that they always will undermine the legal system they are trying to represent. I mean, th this is one of the reasons why I prefer the British system of barristers to the American mm -hmm. system of defense and prosecution attorneys, right? Uh, because they have to play both sides, right? Mm -hmm. So they, you know, in the American system, you can, you can end up with a systematic asymmetry between defense and prosecution, and it doesn't affect individually the defense and prosecution professionals, right? Whereas mm -hmm. in the British legal system, if if it becomes asymmetric between defense and prosecution, it's the same people trying to push either side. So like, it, it'll be a problem for all the practicing professionals. <laughs> okay, so here are some of his other suggestions. Mm -hmm. You can't have judges or juries uh, professional ones, but every citizen should understand it could be their duty. Mm -hmm. The judge's duty is to determine innocence or guilt. The jury's duty is to determine um, punishment. The defendant gets to pick the number of judges and gets to pick the criteria for those judges. The only thing is it has to be an odd number, so there can't be any ties. And uh, the number has to be a number of people you could gather literally off the streets in under an hour. Hmm. Interesting. And the prosecution gets to pick the uh, like jury. Hmm. 
So the idea is then that the prosecution has the hard job because the judges are probably going to be biased in favor of the defense. But the defense can't rest because if they fail, they know that the jury is probably biased in the form of the prosecution. One of their law, one of their basics is you're allowed to be biased, but you're not allowed to be prejudiced. And the difference that he makes between those is bias is saying, I don't like you. And if there's any legal way for me to fuck you over, I will. Mm-hmm. Prejudice is I don't like you. I'm going to fuck you over. Interesting. And Actually, by this, this discussion, he has one. Wait, wait, I want to just mention my favorite part. There is one last rule. There is a legal way to kill every single person in the courtroom, including the judges, the juries, the prosecution, the defense, uh, and anyone watching it in the audience. And as a side effect of this, people don't bring up frivolous lawsuits. It's literally like everything else is tried. Hmm. Every other option is tried first. And one of their rules is for every law you create, you must destroy an old law. So that and one of the only ways they can do that is court cases become more about creating meta laws so you can destroy an old one and replace it with something that covers a broader set of things accurately. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a problem. The deletion of old laws that we haven't really addressed well in any of our current legal settlements, I think. I mean, Frank Herbert's answer is literally God made them. God told them it's the right way to do it. And the gal can do it because God told them to. And like his literal (laughs) answer is, I don't know if there's a systematic answer, but it has to be a cultural one. Mm. Um, This I think. But it is very curious. And I like the system a lot. (laughs) The discussion of this system uh, brings to to mind a sort of meta question about this that, that I've been contemplating quite a lot, which is the. Um. Like the the problem that I think that we often overlook when thinking about the design of our institutions and political structures and so on is we have explored a ridiculously small space of possible designs, right? We, we'd have no idea whether we're at a local maximum or a local minimum because we've only tried like a very small subset of the possible ways to organize these things. And uh, we're making l- very little systematic effort to explore it more broadly. There is actually, mostly in leftist spaces. So I'm sure you heard in 2020 during Black Lives Matter that mm. parts of Seattle had turned into an, a semi-autonomous zone. Yes, and but I wouldn't describe just, that as systematic. Just follow me. <laughs> just follow me on this one, okay? Why did they choose that terminology? And that is because leftist philosophers have talked about the exact problem you're talking about. They're like, Hmm. we need to play around with different organization structures Hmm. so we can see what works and what doesn't. And in fact, what those leftist uh, philosophers often said is you need to create these semi-autonomous zones. Um, A good example of a previous one before it was highly commercialized was the original Burning Man Festival. Hmm. It's a week where people are in the desert and there's really no law. Like you pay for tickets and then the only rule is you bring some art and you can't pay for anything with cash except for water and bike rentals. Hmm. Everything Hmm. has to be barter. So you do these experiments And even in that original philosophy writing, they would talk about how like, hey, these are not sustainable. These are Wild West. But the idea is you do these and then you get new ideas and then you come back to the system and you have 
really new innovative ways that you can implement it into the system to update it. And that you need these regular spaces of play and political play where you get to fool around with things in order to do this. Yeah. But you should never yeah. confuse that with like a real structure. So that and one of the things that bothered me is that they knew that in Seattle, but the public and the media did not portray it that way. They made it seem like it was a coup and they intended to take it over forever. Mm -hmm. Okay. That that's fair enough. But the 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 thing that I um have a little bit of difficulty with there is that exploration is fine as like a hypothesis generating approach right but there's no follow through on the more serious end of okay we've done some exploration we think some of these things might be good as new governance mechanisms but nobody's I mean, actually that's like political organizing exactly that's political organization theory and there mm. are people who've done good work on it but mm. but it's I mean, kind it, of it, fallen it, by the wayside the thing is there's you could have an institution that had that kind of thing baked into it indeed that that's kind of part of the idea of the federal system in the states is supposedly you know a laboratory of democracy right the states are supposed to be able to go their own way to some degree and actually explore this stuff but they don't actually seem to do any of that and there's very little like it when does. there is it exploration there's no uh like the experimental design is poor right <laughs> you actually need to follow through on did it work right which politically under the current situation is like that's never like the attitude is not truth seeking the attitude is can we sell that this policy actually worked like the attitude needs to be how effective is this policy not can we sell the policy right you have actually have I mean, to think of it as a truth-seeking exercise not as a sell the policy exercise i'm gonna be honest here man i think this is a side effect of clintonites and the consultant class insult uh infesting politics in the u.s and now spreading their malachian tentacles all over global politics because there's never been a higher level of dissatisfaction. And the ultimate like personification of this is Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is effectively a brown paper bag with vanilla ice cream inside wrapped around with nothing. Like there's nothing to him. He's a hollow man. I'm pretty sure if I looked at him for too long, my eyes would fuzz out and I would like a Dementor. I would just see static. Um. <laughs> And he is literally a consultant. And if you look at him, the reason he is so reviled is he's all signaling and no virtue. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Like, there is a group of people who think that woke politics on the Internet and knowing the right things to say and being like clever and saying these things is the same as actually doing the work. Yeah. And, and it, I personally uh... hate him. <laughs> I feel bad for his husband. I saw a documentary about him and it made me hate P Pete Buttigieg so much more. But his husband is just like a genuinely sweet, dorky dude. And like, he's a good guy. He, he deserves a hug. Yeah. I mean, I, the specific personalities are uh, you know, more or less irrelevant think, to me at this point. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's actually emblematic. Like, think about what kind of person and what kind of person you need to become. Hmm to choose that as a path 
like Kamala Harris is the other one. Like they're the two people the Democrats are thinking about running if Biden retires. And they're the worst possible options. Whereas yes. then you have Bernie Sanders, who goes on a Fox News program in 2020. And by the end of it, they have an 80 percent approval rating for universal health care because it's a very practical, nailed down thing that like you could implement. It's mm -hmm. not like symbolism or mm -hmm. just signaling. Like, I think you're right that this breed of politicians is all signaling, but I think it's a modern cultural effect and it doesn't have to be that way. And that the incentives weren't always in that direction. And you see it in old mm. school politicians who came up before that time. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. It's a bit of a contrast to the uh, Champo Trap House thing you sent me about uh, Diane uh, Feinstein. <laughs> Because she supposedly oh, well, she came was... up before that, right? And yet she and like, seems to be mostly signal. I mean, there's always going to be some who slip through. The question is percentages. Hmm. Hmm. Like, there is no coalition building. There's no idea of even how to do it. Uh, the Chapo Trap House answer is an entire generation was brainwashed by the show, uh, The West Wing, into believing that politics should be like that. And it's just about like big speeches and being witty and always having the last word and power walking through the White House instead of, you know, using power to change the world in a way that is effective for many people. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, like Sorkin writes well, but that only gets you so far. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah, I mean, like I guess I said uh, last time recorded, I was quite a fan of Andrew Yang's campaign looking in from the outside. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm glad Andrew Yang ran because he did what third parties should do and what they which is like force an issue that was out of the mainstream into the conversation. Into the I don't hmm. think he was ever going to win. But the no. fact that like legitimate people on the left and the right, I've heard, have now started talking about universal basic income is a huge yeah. relief to me the, like, the, the freedom dividend right he, he rebranded yeah. it <laughs> i mean it, i one of the things i like to bring up is hell um nixon wanted to do a negative income tax mm. would have effectively been that like yeah. this was an idea that like has come out from the left and the right several times the right version of it is figure out how much we're giving the average american okay now figure out how much of the cost of running all those is the bureaucracy. Hmm. What if we just had one bureaucracy, remove all the other ones? Like, and yeah. I would say this only works when paired with universal health care, but I think it hmm. would work. Like you could oh, get yeah. rid of uh, it, it, food stamps, everything else. Just get rid of every other aid program and just give people universal basic income yeah. and universal health care. And it would probably save us a lot of money. Hmm. I mean, it, it sells very well from that uh, uh, sort of, a small government and individual responsibility angle, right? Because mm -hmm. you're giving people the autonomy to decide how to spend that money. Uh, and you're 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 giving them uh, effectively a, a a stake in the country that pays a dividend, right? The freedom dividend rebranding works well because it is actually yeah. analogous, right? And and you're, it's not like they're being paid for nothing; they're being paid for being participating citizens in the yeah, project of the United systems. States, right? They're adhering to the laws, they're contributing to society, they're voting, they're maybe engaging in political action, they may be taking part in charitable activities, right? Those are the things that, uh, like, 
if if you're getting dividends as a stakeholder in a company, like you don't have to do anything with your voting rights and your you know uh, ability to do due diligence on the company and contribute to you know, the the betterment of the, that firm, but you you have that option, right? It's available to you, and they'll pay you just to have that option effectively, right? It, it makes much sense in that very same framing. So I, I don't know why it would be particularly unpopular on the right other I mean, than it's, as a big government expense. It's the consultant class again. The consultant mm. class has this view of parentalism and yeah. a just, neoliberal uh, view that everything needs to run perfectly smoothly like the way they learned in college. Mm. And if it doesn't, it's because people are stupid or the world doesn't work. Not that maybe their theories need to be tested more or that the situation's more complex. It's also very good from a privacy perspective, right? Because the government needs to know a lot less about you if they're not interested in what you're doing with the money that you're giving them, and it's not conditional on a bunch of stuff. Right? And like this doesn't take away regulations on dangerous weapons or chemicals or anything. No. Like it's still being regulated. If you're buying bomb materials, the FBI will still put you on a watch list, as they should. Yes, but you know you don't have to prove. Uh, a whole bunch of very specific details about your mm -hmm. life and your income and your living situation in order to get your check, right? It's just you get the check. So no one has to have all that data on file about you. <laughs> uh, I mean, which is a, a good thing in my Facebook book. Facebook and Instagram have already proved that most people would rather exchange privacy for convenience, though. I am happy to see uh, that they're both dying because it means that the younger generations and even like older people are getting fed up with it. I mean, I, I don't, this is one of those, I think, uh, sort of informational market failures, right? There was a lack of actual knowledge and understanding of the nature of what you're giving up in giving up your privacy. And people didn't appreciate what the, the value proposition was there when they decided to make that exchange. It's only now when some of the uh, things are coming home to roost that that becomes much more evident what the problem was. The way I heard it framed to me years ago, so I make, I've told you before that I salt my data online on purpose to make it mm. harder for people to figure me out. But what really changed my mind about that was a few years ago. I think it was the Joe Rogan podcast, but they were talking about how like once or twice a year, there are these big like moments where Google and Facebook will go to the advertising companies and they will show them that they have an algorithm and they're like, hey, before you were able to sell your ad like product using our algorithm with an 80% accuracy into click rates uh, with these people. Well, now using our new data modeling, we're able to make that even more accurate. Mm -hmm. And so the way it was framed to me is literally these people make their money by convincing others that they can take away your autonomy and free will, like measurably take away your ability to like to know when to target you, mm -hmm. to know when to do these things. And I'm like, oh, the thing they're selling is my freedom and mm -hmm. my agency. And yeah. I'm like, I don't want that. I like and that. I use that for things. Uh, you know, Shishana Zuboff's surveillance capitalist hypothesis, which is a problem in and of itself. But I think there's... Uh, there's some layers to that in that uh, it's it's actually not very it's it's not as good as Google and Facebook are selling it 
to people as, right? They're not actually as good at predicting what you're going to do as they claim to be to the people whom they're selling the uh, ad time to. There's a lot of fraud uh, on their part to uh, over uh, overclaim on their ability to predict behavior. So, uh, and, and there's nothing really to stop them because they're the only people in that ad tech space, right? They have near monopoly power uh, in, in that arena. And there's no transparency requirement at all on them to actually demonstrate follow through on their claims. Uh, so it's... Uh, I mean, the real answer then is the due diligence belongs to the companies who are hmm. accepting this to be like, hey, like here is a rule I learned from Nassim Talib that I very much follow. Hmm. Whenever a man in a suit is telling you how he's going to offer you a plan that has like anything beyond 2% returns <laughs> into the future, ask him to show you his predictions five years ago and how well they panned out. Hmm. And, and even that's no guarantee. <laughs> it's not, but it's a pretty good heuristic. If everyone it's, it's used that heuristic, yep. if everyone used that heuristic, 80% of scam artists would fail. There's mm. 20% who do have a good record going that far just because of dumb luck, mm. but just reducing 80% would be massive. Exactly. Yep. Uh, yep. By the way, that rule has never done me wrong once in my life and has at least once saved a family member from like being scammed. Hmm. Never trust a man in a suit telling you that they know like how the market or anything will give you money. Yeah, almost guaranteed to be a scam. Well, I have a lot of respect for people who will tell you what the odds of failure are. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, always a good sign, right? But in the sort mm -hmm. of heuristics, people who will actually talk about the... Uh, you know, the downside risk. Oh, that was what I was. The other thing about universal basic income, I, I had a thought that had disappeared. Mm -hmm. The, um, I think uh, we have a bit of a problem with the way we think about investment and, and risk in the current culture, right? We put everything in kind of like VC funds and it's all about, uh, you know, like, very high risk, supposedly, often much less risky than they make it out to be investments in potentially massive payoffs, right? Unicorns is what everyone's hoping for, billion dollar valuations. Yeah, exactly, right? But there's a lot of very maladroitly invested money uh, in many projects that if you actually pay attention to them will not go anywhere. And most of the ones that are... Uh, like that's actually uh, invested in, they're not actually that risky a proposition in some regards, right? When the when the people who are intelligently investing are making investments, they're not really investing in very risky stuff. And so, if you think about it from the perspective of an individual person with the prospect of starting up a company, right? What what are you actually going to be thinking about in that regard, right? I'm not going to be thinking about. Am I going to get a successful company that is, you know, able to pay my bills? Maybe if I'm lucky, that will mean I won't, you know, I can retire comfortably and you know, afford my healthcare expenses if I live in the states and uh, you know, 
you still I mean, do that for some reason. I know a lot of people who are businessmen and mm. almost always the process is they have an itch they want to scratch. Now, yeah. usually they are ambitious people who yeah. usually, you know, have always been hustling and doing it. But it's almost always like, hey, I have noticed this problem and I wish someone would solve this. Yeah. And that leads to it, not this like deliberative practice. And they have to kind mm -hmm. of improvise the rest of it as they figure out the system. Exactly. Right. They have an itch to scratch and then they have to try and figure out a way of going from whatever it is they're doing now to actually having started a company. And the deciding factor for that is not the upside, right? It's not, can I, it's, can I fix this particular problem and make a living at it? It's not, can I become the next Jeff Bezos? Right, people appreciate that that's like a, an outlier thing to attempt to yeah. do. Right? So the actual barrier is not the upside; it's the downside risk. Right, the thing that you want to do if you want to encourage people to start companies is not give them like bigger, More higher money. variance outcomes. Right, it's not you have a tiny fractional chance of becoming like the next Jeff Bezos. Right, it's you have a decent chance of actually making this a going concern that will pay the bills right it's a totally I mean, different I proposition would, i would actually rephrase it i'd be like hey man just know the fact that like 70 percent of businesses fail in the first year yeah another like 25 fail in the first three years yeah um but that's so, not devastating if you have universal basic income exactly. so you can keep trying it's mitigate the downside risk it's yeah not uh, you know, will I become a millionaire? It's will I be able to continue to house and feed my family? Will I still be able and, to have paid my health care? Will I still be able to pay the bills? I, I, and I, most even people, pe people will take a hit to their standard of living to go and do that project as long as mm -hmm. they have that baseline. 100%. And in fact, we've seen this with universal basic income studies where like the level of entrepreneurship increases and the actual amount of money in the community tends to increase. Now, these have been small scale studies, so mm. all variance is high. So there's a lot of like, mm. you know, I wouldn't trust it too much, but it's at least a strong indicator that it is not as cut as cut and dry and that you're probably right about that, that mm. it's the transition cost and the fear of like falling out of the system that stops people. Yeah. And personally, it's the downside risk. I'm going to say this. Um, some of the only people I know who've successfully transitioned were drug dealers, because <laughs> as dark as it sounds, because they had a side income that they could mm. do while they were trying to transition that gave them a liquid cash income that they could use as they needed, they were able to transition out of it. And in fact, I think that if you look in American history, Peter uh, Steven Pinker in his podcast, uh, Revisionist History, talks about how like the first American revolutionaries were all kind of gangsters. Mm -hmm. But it was, in fact, the extra money that allowed them to pay for their like to become legitimate businessmen and to send their kids to college while they were transitioning through a hard time. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, I mean, my old drug dealer now runs a really successful food truck company and he hasn't sold anything in like eight ten years he has a wife and kids and like he's a great guy hmm. and i know so many people who went to college who have better degrees than like he never got a degree hmm. but they were always trapped in that fragility loop you're talking about so they never got the quality of life that he did mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's a big uh a big blocker i think i mean it's it's hard to say without like a, a much larger scale trial, which kind of you know loops back to the discussion we were having earlier about 
exploring the possibility space of policy and if you did something like this at the level of a state then you for you know a couple of decades then you'd have a data set worth talking about for whether or not it's actually more effective than the current model. Oh, we do. We do. It's uh, Alaska. So ah, Alaska yes, is so mm. barren, yeah, that like they pay people part of the oil dividend. I believe it's like three to $5,000 a year, which isn't a lot, but yeah, life that's... in Alaska isn't that expensive either, except for a few mm. imported goods that are really expensive. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, Japanese goods, very cheap, because I never thought about it. Japan's awfully close to Alaska. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> much shorter shipping. Hmm. Yeah, never thought about that, but there's like a very strong Japanese crossover in Alaska, and because mm -hmm. it became a state so late, uh, it has a lot fewer of the racial issues that other states do. Hmm. But yeah, they have had that for a while, and Although when you factor out the issues with Alaska, like the depression and the things related to the environment, life is actually pretty nice for people there. Hmm. Like if in theory, if you applied it to a state that wasn't a uh, barren hellscape full of grizzly bears and megafauna, <laughs> it would be a very successful plan. Yeah, yeah. and of course, it's not quite enough to actually uh, get you to the point where, like, it's a, it, it it doesn't quite meet the threshold of like if 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 you Your have bills something are to covered. fall back on. Yeah, yeah. So it's just sort of the, it, it doesn't quite cover the, you know, the lower tiers of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs type thing, right? It's kind of a, address that bit and then leave people with just enough headroom to uh, know, feed, clothe, get healthcare for their family. And then you've got I mean, some room for people to do other stuff. So we were talking in the guild last week about what are the 12 questions that you think about and one of mine is how do you make a more permanent society a more resilient society and culture mm. and dealing with maslow's hierarchy is the first thing so one of the things i've been thinking about is how do you make the bottom layer of maslow's hierarchy as resilient for every person as possible mm. and the answer i have come up with that i would by the way listeners if you guys have ideas please share them uh either email us or at the guild of the rose or check us out but have you ever heard of earth ships um not specifically what's uh it sounds like a familiar concept from science fiction but what's the okay so this guy something reynolds mm -hmm. absolutely out of his mind he's an architect he said he did uh, peyote in the desert and three wizards gave him the vision of how to make earth ships. <laughs> so clearly out of his mind, kind of brilliant, though. Hmm. His concept was we should build a house that creates everything you need to like satisfy Maslow's bottom part of the hierarchy of needs hmm. as part of its initial design. And so he got permits to do it in Arizona. The walls are every part of it is recycled. So the walls are made from packed tires. Huh. with dirt and then plastered over the end result is they have so much thermal mass that when they heat up during the day they keep their thermal mass at night and they actually keep the house hot in okay. colder environments like they're always like these ranch style houses and they're always facing the southwest perpendicular mm. to where the sun will be at the uh highest point in the year so what ends up happening is when it's hottest the windows right near it and it's just a row of windows uh, become a greenhouse that is actually able to both purify some of your water and produce food for you 
Very nice. They And during the coldest part of the year, when the sun is at the lowest, the light shines deep into the house, warming up the whole house. I like so this like by using really clever design, really good architecture, like the water is recycled. They uh, didn't even have solar panels originally, but he had some really clever designs using black piping and water moving through to create flows between different temperature gradients and using that to power mm. things. And now solar panels make that so much more efficient. And so like I looked at it, I'm like, this covers literally everything but clothing. One of these houses covers every single part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs but clothing and you combine that with permaculture Does it get you creating with food. the food um the two-story ones do because mm. they're able to add high yield trees and using grafting techniques you can like mm. maximize it it's really amazing one of the ones they have in arizona as a show-off has an aquaculture setup and that one has fish that you can use like tilapia out of there. And you can even make that more efficient using a grate and putting crawfish under that. And therefore you could get two more sources of protein. Okay. Add permaculture onto it with like a half a one acre yard. And mm. you can generate enough calories for an eight person family per year comfortably. So now the question is how much labor time has to go I into- I looked at the math. I looked at this. Mm. Um, the biggest issue is regulatory. Mm. But even with that, these do take a lot of effort. So the end, they end up costing about 1.3 to 1.5 the cost per square foot as a house of the same size. But when you compare it against cost of utilities saved, they make up the difference in about seven years which isn't bad at all. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't get you to the, like how much time, if I'm an occupant of this house, how much of my huh. day do I have to spend managing like maintaining it? and managing none. the house? Almost none. Well, let me rephrase that. Much like a garden, hmm. there is a high workload at the beginning. And then by year two, it's very, it's like barely anything. It's like a chore that you think about once or twice a week. And by year three, from everything I've heard, because people have been living in these for 20 years, hmm. um, it's almost automatic. Interesting. And like there are people who've gone a step further, like they've they used Arduino boards to put sensors in to be like, hey, hmm. uh, instead of me manually opening and closing these vents that allow cold air to rush from underground. So that's my air conditioning. Mm -hmm. I can just have a temperature sensor and then have a little Arduino board and a motor. They'll just move it automatically. So they have automatic like green air conditioning. And I'm yep. like, that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my, my next question is like, how much of that can we successfully automate away into uh, you know, tasks? A that significant reduce amount. the cognitive load. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Um, so they do a good amount of it, but not everything. The mm. permaculture allows you to use land to create these ecosystems that feed each other. And one of the things that like pisses me off to no end is that I think a lot of people on the left don't talk about the numbers and a lot of ecologists and eco-friendly permaculture people don't talk about the numbers. For mm. example, a permaculture food forest, much like what I said, in takes like twice as much labor mm. per acre as a regular plot of land with a monoculture for the mm. first three years. Then it actually takes half the labor after that point. 
Uh, Here's the interesting, interesting thing. Once they actually get up, they produce 1.2 to 1.3 times the calories per acre as a regular monoculture system. But hmm. nobody ever talks about that. They talk about the ecological benefits, how it's good for the environment, how the fresh food is better for you. And all those things are true. But like you need to give people hard numbers so they can understand like why this is worth it as an investment. Hmm. So between Earthships and there are like a lot of innovations. So a good example is these were designed in Arizona. Um, when they moved them to the north, they realized that the ground would just leach the heat because it wasn't hmm. super hot all the time. So they're like, hey. The best thing for you to do if you want to be ecological is to actually put in a layer of fungal and like hay insulation between you and the earth. Mm. And that will solve the issue. But if that that actually will eat up like three or four feet of space because they're very thick, mm. if that is too much because you have to bury down deeper into it. You can use a very thin layer of insulation foam and it will have a carbon footprint. But with everything else you're doing, you will offset it within 10 years on top of everything else. So they even have like options where they're not like, oh, you have to do it exactly this way or you're not friendly. Mm -hmm. They have a similar suggestion when you live in very humid environments that you use a very thin rubber cladding uh, on the inside to prevent the humidity from causing mold. But mm -hmm. other than that, the design works very, very well. Interesting. I will yeah. actually show you an image of what one of them looks like on the inside. Yeah. They are gorgeous. Like, I actually think that's what won me over the most because humans are fed by beauty as well. Hmm. The like, visual appeal would be important for somewhere where you're going to live. <laughs> well, not only that, but uh, what's his name? Jordan Peterson makes this argument that like Americans literally will go across an ocean just to visit Europe to see beautiful things because it's good for the human soul. Like, I hate a lot of modern architecture. I feel blessed that I live in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, because we are such an old part of America that a lot of it looks like Germany. Like, if you look, if you drive around Lidditz mm. or East Petersburg, Pennsylvania, it looks like Dusseldorf. Mm. Like, we live in, like, an old German village, effectively. Mm. Nice. <laughs> but like I drive to the Midwest and it is just as horrifying as you are imagining. And I'm sh you said you visited the US, so you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it depends on the architecture, right? There's, there's some architectural styles of the modern era that, yeah, I don't like, but there's others that are much more appealing. <laughs> so that's what an Earthship looks like from the inside. And you'll mm -hmm. see it's like a row home. The new ones actually have a wall uh here so what you, it segregates a little better so what you have is a home there's a ranch home nice. where the windows face out and it becomes like a greenhouse there and then you go through this greenhouse as a hallway and you open the doors to the different rooms hmm. and by opening up the windows at the top and bottom you can control how much heat and humidity the planters you see right there underneath the window actually cycle the water so what happens is uh when you use water in the sink uh it first or in the shower i sh uh when you use it in the sink or the shower it gets cycled through and then it gets put into your toilet and then when it's done with that it actually goes through these plants your and gray these plants, water as they call it yeah your gray yeah. water is cleaned by these plants until it becomes 
almost clean enough again. And then they have like a little out system and you can just plant a tree in front, like a high moisture sucking tree. And you really, it becomes the drainage field and you don't need a septic tank. Mm. Like they've had entire families, like large families live in these and never have an issue. Interesting. They just plant an extra tree. You might have an issue with the uh, surfactants in your wastewater uh, negatively impacting the plants. But I suppose it depends uh, they, on your practices. They and, have yeah. pretty good systems to help mitigate that. Like uh, a good example is they used to mix in a little bit of charcoal and a little bit of wood ash, as well as some like neutralize, uh, just like a general hmm. mixture because it's essentially a hydroponic system. Mm -hmm. Now they have automatic feeders and filters that just help manage that. Very nice. Yeah. Hmm. So I suppose the question is, why does this not have wider adoption? Because the house is made of trash and people, it doesn't feel cool yet. This is one of the reasons why I think Elon Musk deserves at least some of the credit he is given, which is people had electric cars. People did that. He wasn't innovative mm. in that way. He made it cool, which is why everyone else followed afterwards. Like that matters. Yeah. Yeah. They're giving it some, uh, some appeal. Mm. Good sales pitch. <laughs> oh, well, more like marketing, but mm. yeah. I want an Earthship. In fact, it is my personal dream to buy a plot of land in Colorado and build an Earthship on it. And there's a person in Vermont, uh, Ben Falk, mm -hmm. who is a permaculture expert who started a company called Whole Systems Design, who started as a systems engineer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love his work so much. And what he points out is what a lot of us consider to be natural features were, in fact, the hard work of many, many generations of prehistoric people creating these complex ecosystems and nurturing that. And then he has a lot of really good archaeological evidence to back this up. Yeah. And beyond that, he's like using a lot of these techniques, not like in a haphazard way, but as a systems engineer and testing them, I was able to create on a three acre farm or he has a 10 acre farm hmm. um more food than farms next to me that were on better land by an order of magnitude hmm. yeah and it's and shocking it's... like he discovered that you could grow rice paddy fields like in japan in the northeast of the united states so now there are rice paddy huh. fields in vermont <laughs> that's cool but yeah i mean if you talk to anyone who you know, it does land management of one kind or another, like uh, mm -hmm. that becomes immediately clear, right? That there's maintaining a complex ecosystem by sort of, you know, tweaking the balance of things is just like what we have done more or less for our entire history, right? We cultivate these kind of complex ecosystems, but we have kind of recently started this kind of more a uh, reductionist approach i suppose you might call it but uh yeah it's interesting because it, it i do wonder about questions of scale on this still because it's it, like our kind of industrialization approach has scaled very well but it doesn't seem as though the um 
strategy that's you know more like this, more like the kind of ancestral strategy, has had the same success in scaling. But maybe we can bring um, it back. Maybe we can. I, I uh, think scale that this. You're as well. right. Yeah. I think you're right, but I think the Internet of Things and automation actually are the place that this is going to work. Like hmm. one of the things I'm fascinated by is I will watch YouTube videos of people who have automated features in their house, just like, you know, on their own yeah, using yeah. an Arduino board and a little practice. And then I will look at these Earthship homes and I will hear these people complain about a feature. I'm like, that can be automated away. Hmm. That can be automated away, too. And in it's fact, a- they're. They're not thinking about it because they're the kind of people who want to save the ecology and the environment, and they're doing this very good work, Hmm. but it's just out of their sphere of thinking about it. I really believe that we can get to a point where the only thing you have to do is like an hour of labor once a week and the labor of picking your food. Hmm. Yep. And if if we get to that point, then it's actually something that we'll be able to scale. Yeah. Although there's <laughs> there's an interesting irony about the the Internet of Thing things as currently uh, incarnated and that ideal of it, because as especially with the starting from the concept of something like a very robust foundation that can meet Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and current Internet of Things devices are ridiculously brittle in there design architecture oh my god yes (laughs) that's why i actually like the idea of using uh like homemade arduino boards or like very simple circuits that people kind of like custom make yeah i mean in my ideal world you would live in a community with these and Mm -hmm. everyone would have like an acre of land to themselves the house takes up about a third of it but two-thirds of an acre is enough to produce calories and look very pretty yeah you can use techniques of hedging and density to create like essentially plant walls between your neighbors for a little privacy Hmm. and every community has a few shops and one of them is a 3d printing diy shop where you can order like specific microchips and stuff that you might need and then they will assemble most of the product there using whatever can be manufactured on site Hmm. so you just get like a 95 percent finished product that you just kind of customize on your own yep so we have to ditch this whole thing where your doorbell stops working because AWS is down. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be I local hate... and it's got to be open and accessible to the people who are actually using the thing. <laughs> I mean, I think this is where permaculture, as in literally trying to make a permanent culture, hmm. um, anti-fragility and mm. like the tech revolution can all kind of work in tandem absolutely and i feel really yeah. sad that a lot of tech has been co-opted by people who want to make us more centralized more fragile more dependent on systems based on efficiency the and analogy that, uh... i've always heard is this mm-hmm. uh I'll, my last thing is that when you want a world of efficiency you're pretty much saying i hate friction I hate it when there's any lag time, when things don't go exactly the way I plan. Mm-hmm. I don't want to live in a world that's imperfect, a world with sin. I want a world without sin. And the side effect of losing friction is that a lot of the best ideas are tangents and things we explore that we discover because of friction. Mm-hmm. Friction is how creativity is born. A mm-hmm. world without friction is a world without creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, or at least... Um... Severely it, reduced creativity. It's, I don't know if it necessarily has to be friction per se, but you need 
downtime, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be like enforced by some bottleneck in another external process, but you need something that gives you that kind of, um, you know, the occasional you liminality down. and the occasional yeah. ability to to sit and reflect on on other things. But yeah, 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 and I think that this also uh, connects back to our previous discussion right you so you you have this concept of you know you, you go to the local 3d print shop and you can get some custom electronics or whatever but and the, the previous episode i was you know talking about my problems with the way we currently do so-called intellectual property and the way that we do that at the moment causes a lot of problems for actually implementing that idea right so take some examples from the right to repair movement of late, right? So even someone with very strong intentions in that space who wants to kind of be open with their um, like schematics for their electronics or whatever finds themselves caught in a situation of like nested licensing agreements and similar stuff. So if I order a board for a computer that's compatible with all of these chipsets or whatever from a manufacturer, they can't actually like share with me the schematics in a form that I can share with my end customer, even if I want to, right? They'll only make the thing for me if I agree to not share the schematics with my end users. So you have this kind of like chain of confiscation such that the only way to actually have enough control over the entire manufacturing process and the associated licensing is to basically do everything from scratch right you have to go all the way back to like designing your own silicon making it and the boards and everything if you want to be free from intellectual property encumberments that prevent you from sharing the information about your stuff with your end customer it's crazy i mean i I think that will happen because you'll be able to tell a neural net, I want this thing to be done. And then it will give you a design, probably through an evolutionary design feature using algorithms to optimize for certain things that can be 3D printed in using conductive uh, materials built into the material as it's being printed. Like that's what I imagine the future of the internet of things being. Uh, I mean, Specialist I'm a manufacturer when it comes to like silicon microchips is still not like that's but you don't need that like this is the thing that always bothers me about this discussion yeah the urge to use silicon microchips is because we need them to be tiny for things like smartphones so all of our industrial capacity is made for these incredibly efficient hypercomputers that fit on the head of a pin hmm. but if i want a smart blender I don't need the microchip to be that small. It can be giant. It could literally be the entire inside of the machine that isn't the motor. And it can be a complex maze in there of 3D printed materials interacting in ways I barely comprehend. And it will still be fine for me. And like, that's totally doable with Mm -hmm. the fine grain work. Like it would have to be very fine. It would have to be about a 10th of the width of a human hair. So we are very far from that level of uh, granular like specificity in our 3D printing, but it's not off the horizon impossible. And then, yeah, that's I what mean, I imagine. It feels like a 
bad efficiency trade-off right, in terms of why energy usage right like if why? you, if you, you, you can use... put that on a silicon chip why not right that's, that's I mean, so much cheaper in energy why? costs how like to run like and once oh. you have once you have oh the yes because it is tiny and yes yes yeah. i do understand yeah yeah i mean like, you're not wrong but there are ways we can deal with that for example there are meta materials that can absorb infrared heat and then turn it once it has reached a certain threshold inside of it i wrote a paper on this they're made of silicon which is in our uh silicon carbon mixture and they're like little beads hmm. but they release it as green light so that he can go out of the atmosphere and not get trapped because green light goes through hmm. and doesn't get trapped by greenhouse effects mm -hmm. so like there are ways to deal with that and you're right it is an energy it is less efficient than using silicon but for ease of use and think about the energy usage of mailing the silicon mm -hmm. yeah I, I i can certainly see there would be some uh some like trade-offs there the economics I think would that be the interesting trade-off the trade-off is the silicon itself is much more efficient while it's running hmm. but the input cost would be so much higher whereas hmm. this would be the opposite the input cost would actually be incredibly cheap but the machine itself would run less efficiently hmm. now the real question I mean, then would be is better still if you could actually just have access to you know, a, oh absolutely uh, you know, but i don't think that's foundry. gonna happen i don't <laughs> yeah. think that's gonna happen also mm. it's just difficult because i've looked at them and they're it's such technical work i mean my mm. one of my teachers literally said this is the closest thing to alchemy humans have you take in sand and you make something more valuable than gold yeah yeah it's it's, uh, it's pretty, pretty astonishing. insane so I think we're going to have to go back also because I think supply chains are going to break down. It's a Peter Zion prediction and hmm. China's already become a useless partner and it's going to take three to five years for the industrial capacity of other places to meet their demand. We're going to have to look because China does all the low end mi Microsoft manufacturing. Like, yes, 80% of the chips are made in China, but by value, 60% are made in the US. Like anything that's expensive and complicated probably made in the US, Mexico, and a few places in Europe. Um, Anything that's dumb and stupid in the Internet of Things or an LED light bulb, probably China. That's not a I mean, hard and fast rule, but it is, like I said, 60% of the value is the US. It's like TSMC, though, in Taiwan, they have like a near monopoly on the highest end of new silicon, right? The latest process nodes in the kind of sub 10 millimeter range. Um, that's not true, actually. I know for a fact that the factory that is creating the machine that does that, because they did a two-hour deep dive documentary on this, and I watched it for one of my classes, is actually based out of Seattle, Washington, and they have they have three or four orders. And this was like two years ago, so they probably have way more. The technique is incredibly cool, but they are selling it to other places. Now, that place probably has the first one, but I guarantee you there are so other places in the US that are not far behind. As, as and I they understand get to like it, four nanometers. Yeah. So, as I understand it, those are individual um, uh, like stations in the actual manufacturing process, right? So, you've got the Dutch who supply one of the like high end UV lasers, you've got some people in the US who supply some other stuff, but when you actually put them together as an assembly line that's where 
the and the actual kind of use of those things in practice in in scale manufacturing of chips that's all in taiwan right so the taiwanese are like buying the machines from various places but putting them in an assembly line and having them all hooked up is uh, and then actually they you know their use in production uh, my understanding well, is I that's think we where should clarify a little there. bit about what we're talking yeah. here so the hard part of producing a chip is that you make what is essentially a mask and you mm. shine a uv light through it and it gets optically bent so the mask itself is this giant disc with the pattern that you want emblazoned on the microchip that's super super tiny and then the light goes through it and it's kind of like a lens and a screen print at the same time. It both focuses it down to be really, really tiny and like only burns away the stuff that's there. That's the hard part. Uh, that also... is the very, very difficult part. And making the bullions, uh, the long tubes of silicon that you're cutting and that you're doing this on. Hmm. Although so like actually, actually making machine... the wafers... Um, yes, is not that challenging relative yes. to the lithography. But the other component of it is depositional processes, where you put um, very fine coatings of particular dopings onto the surface, which is also that very is getting easier difficult. and easier to do on a personal level. I have watched people get to molecular level buttering techniques in their fucking garage. Mm. Like we've gotten really good at that because we've been using it for so long. Like that's one technique where I'm actually not worried about the bottleneck being there. Interesting. Yeah. Like I literally saw a guy, uh, applied science is incredible. I don't know if you watch him. You probably do. Cause Richard, you, you seem like the kind of guy who would, but if you don't, you'd love him. Don't think I know he this guy. Oh my God. Go Look my him list. up. He has a crazy YouTube channel and he has the garage lab of my dreams okay. and he'll just do crazy projects. And one of them is he's like, I got an old electron microscope off of eBay and then I fixed it up. So now I have my own working electron microscope. And another one is I'm going to sputter some stuff and then I'm going to look at it under my electron microscope. And then he did hmm. all in his garage. And like the project, like his, the hard part was the knowledge because hmm. he's an engineer and a scientist. So he had this background knowledge. But the actual equipment was like this price of a mildly expensive hobby over the course of a few months. Not even that bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's, there's going to be a bit of a difference between doing it in that context and doing it to On an manufacturing level. tolerances for something I, like a... I, yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying, mm. like, I think we actually need to lower our standards and be honest about it. Like, instead of trying mm. to use the same tier of microchip and the same structure of computing for everything, maybe mm. we should accept a more old school model that is less efficient, but easier to manufacture on site for things that don't need it. Mm. Listen, for my com for my desktop computer. Yeah, I want the highest end stuff. I want silicon microchips. If they get those like crazy spintronic ones that I've been hearing about that like use silicon to isolate individual atoms and calculate binary bits based on the spin of the electron. Fuck yeah, I want that. <laughs> but like, yeah. I don't need that level of like hard work and intellectual work going into mm -hmm. every single thing that I want to be electronic. That's and I think fair. going backwards a little bit and accepting that will make our system more resilient probably mm. less efficient i'm willing to agree less efficient but I mean, more resilient it doesn't it, if we do more asics right more application specific devices of one kind or another especially if we mm -hmm. do more analog stuff 
then it doesn't even necessarily have to be a lot less efficient in terms of its like specific application to that problem. Um, and for what yeah. it's worth, Peter Zion says that as global supply chains break down, we will be going more analog because a lot of those easier microchips and even some of the more important ones are going to be harder and harder to get. Like Look, already a, you're seeing it in cars. There's a trend to doing analog in silicon uh, microchips as well as in, um, uh, in more conventional systems, right? So, for example, for doing, um, uh, there's a there's a company attempting to make analog computers out of um, uh, QLC NAND flash. Uh, so. In a, the the flash that you have the flash storage you have in your um ssds um okay in uh the old iteration it had two states right it was binary you know you had two yeah. charge levels right but the newest versions you've gone to mlc um tlc and now qlc flash where individual cells have multiple different charge levels um up oh. to quad charge level in the most high density modern storage so you can actually use that as an analog readout if you, you know, like completely rewrite the firmware on the controller. But you can measure like continuously how much charge is on the cell rather than making it into four levels. Is it on or off? Yeah. yeah. Or on or off. Yeah. Oh my god. Redstone engineers in Minecraft are going to be so valuable because they're the only <laughs> ones who've learned to think in engineering levels like this because of the way Redstone works in Minecraft. Yeah, but people uh, are already um, doing it's that. Coming kind of thing in it's, yeah. always, it's always it's always <laughs> coming back around. Yep, that's a certain circularity to it. <laughs> uh, oh my god! I will say that I think one of the things that inspired me about this is when I first learned about Earthships. I actually built one in Minecraft, and I was just like curious <laughs> about it, and it was actually kind of delightful like mm. they're beautiful designs like and i sent you some of the photos but yeah minecraft helped me make a life decision there and i'm pretty okay with it <laughs> yeah. the other thing i have decided though is there are also these like twenty thousand dollar pods that you can buy and you bury them with dirt and they look like a little hobbit home hmm. there's like a fifty thousand dollar version that looks bigger and you can grab grass on them Interesting. Uh, I'm going to have my own lab. Uh, that is something I insist on and hmm. my own workshop. And I want to put it there and I want it to be separate from my house hmm. because I know too much biology and chemistry not to do things that are not. I'm not going to do anything reckless, but there is always inherent yeah. risk in science. So, and if I have children, I want that to be locked away. <laughs> <laughs> like Daddy's lab should be the kind of place that no one in my family goes in until the age of 21 without me explicitly being there. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's a, that image reminded me a little bit of uh, actually some of this discussion of these kind of self-sufficient houses. Have you seen um, Captain Fantastic? No. It's a film starring Viggo Mortensen. Um, mm. It's written by, uh, what's his name, Matt? Matt's, uh, I'll forget I'll get his name at some point, but it's, it's the guy who plays um, uh, Gavin Belson in Silicon Valley. Oh, really? Yeah. Hilarious. Right? Uh, but it, it, I would, based on his character, I would not remotely have expected him to make this film. It's possibly one of my favorite films. <laughs> wow. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it has a character who has this kind of off-grid lifestyle i won't go into too much detail about it but uh yeah i, I strongly recommend it <laughs> well relating yeah. to the guild class for this week 
uh, we're doing emergency preparedness and mm. we're thinking about uh, the basic part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and thinking about how you deal with short term like things, which we call emergencies and then long term things like disasters. The difference between I've broken my leg while hiking and there's an earthquake and my town might not have power for a few days. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I really like Earthships is the truth is if you have an Earthship, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, like, you're pretty much fine. Yeah, like the only thing you don't really have access to is extreme medical care. Hell, mm. with some basic planning, you can even have a lot of the like non-basic stuff covered, just like the very few outliers, like a uh, cathartic condition or a long-term issue. Though even that can be mitigated with good lifestyle. Like a good example is mm. this. They've done research about people who don't smoke anything at all people who smoke cigarettes, people who smoke marijuana, and people who smoke weed and cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered is, as you'd expect, uh, people who smoke cigarettes have a significantly higher chance of getting lung cancer and many mm -hmm. other forms of cancer. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. People who smoke weed and cigarettes have a higher than baseline but not much. Like it's just barely above standard deviation or above uh, the margin of error. So they're like, it's real, but way less than we expected. <laughs> and people who only smoke marijuana had lower rates of lung cancer than the average. Interesting. <laughs> the yeah. best theory we have as to why this is, is that you are irritating your body, but just like green tea has other uh, chemicals in it besides caffeine that help mellow out the effects of caffeine, mm. there are other cannabinoids affecting your lungs. And one of them is an immuno activator that causes you like you always as a stoner, you always hear and you mm. probably hear me. Oh, if you're caught, if you're not coughing, it's not working. Well, what is a cough? It's an immuno response. So your mm -hmm. body which is usually ignoring cancer cells because there's an the immune system thinks everything is fine is now being mildly aggravated. So it's constantly checking your lungs and flushing them out. <clears throat> I mean, so the, that's an interesting one uh, because the useful kind of immune activation is not non-specific, right? So it's, it's a generalized feature of aging that we have a lot of non-specific immunoinflammation and inflammation. Mm -hmm that increases as we get older and we have a reduced your joints, like sometimes um, an old injury will make it worse but generally all your joints kind of feel bad at the same rate yeah but also just in in tissue in the background right that we have it's, it's all sometimes referred to as inflammaging right there's just a, a generalized higher inflammation uh low level non-specific mm -hmm. immune response that increases as you age but um there's a decline in the uh, more targeted immune responses, uh, uh, which is a you know, means that you're less adept at, at fighting off uh, cancer and other in external infections, mm -hmm. despite the higher immune reactivity in the you know, non-specific response. So it's I mean, uh, combine that with the data that you see about like how hot saunas and cold showers alternating mm. between them even once a month has like reduced cause more uh of all mortality in mm. every country where it's prominent by like 15 percent 
Yeah, yeah. That would this be kind of, revolutionary. Um, hormetic stress response type thing, right? It's yeah. A, a, again, circling back to the beginning of the conversation about the mm-hmm. uh, you know banging your heads into sand to get the the thicker skull, right? A lot of the stuff is if you can exercise the system by mildly stressing it, you can strengthen it, but you don't want to push it too far. And what you're simulating there, and I've thought about this, is you're a hunter-gatherer, It's you know, and you have, like, chores to do. And in mm. winter, you just kind of rest. And in the summer, it's so hot that you only do stuff at night. But, like, you know, in the spring, you have, like, hot days, you have cold days, and you're not exposed to it all the time. In fact, a lot of hunter-gatherer society had a lot of more free time than we did. Mm. But you do have this brief exposures to the extreme temperatures, and then you go back to normal. Your body kind of enjoys that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, the way I view it is Marianne Williamson got it right. We don't have a department of sickness. We have a depart. We don't have a department of health. We have a department of sickness. Like, if we had a real department of health in the United States, they would be doing things like saying, okay, not everyone wants to smoke marijuana. That is a perfectly valid decision, especially because for religious and personal reasons, people don't like being intoxicated. We should do the research to figure out what specifically is the effect here that is causing this and preemptively give that to people. We should stop investing money afterwards into emergencies where people have like long term health conditions and start paying people to get memberships at saunas and invest in those like the ancient Romans did, like bathhouses. Yeah, because it sounds ridiculous, but like doing those things would drop the cost of universal healthcare in America by a significant amount. Like her point in the democratic debate uh, back in 2020 was the US is so unhealthy that all of these arguments about how we can afford it would go away if we were just at the same level of health as our European friends and our Canadian friends. I mean, it, it's the preventative care problem is not um, unique to the US. It's it's exacerbated. It's extra by, bad here, yeah. but it's not it's not unique to here. Yeah, uh, but it, it's a generalized feature of modern Western healthcare systems in that they are designed primarily for infectious disease and kind of basic population health stuff but not really uh, and emergency medicine but not really for actual like long-term care right we have a sort of major structural transition to undergo now that we've like mostly dealt with the serious infectious disease problems and the getting really good at emergency medicine but we haven't yet like transition to actual healthcare. Dude, we're getting really I saw a, a paper a few months ago that they tried the first head transplant. I don't think it was successful, <laughs> but the fact that they like tried a, Okay. Yeah, it was a Russian dude uh because he had been paralyzed since birth and had been suicidal and someone posited this to him and he was like, "Listen, I'm willing to do this because I already was like questioning whether or not I wanted to live, and at least this gives me the chance to do it." And I think he did not survive, but it hmm. worked way better than they thought. Like he didn't immediately die on the table. Hmm. He went into a coma and he lasted for a while. And there was even moments of lucidity and communication from him. Now, I feel hmm. very bad for him because this is obviously something on the very forefront. But like hmm. literally, if we're reattaching heads to bodies, emergency medicine is about as good as we can ever hope for it to be. <laughs> that is fucking bananas. Like we're hmm. 10 years away probably from making that a technique that is like applicable enough that we teach it in medical schools everywhere. But like that's that's the end stone. Like what else do you need after that? 
that, yeah, that, that's that. I can think of a few extra bits, but yeah, that's pretty good. Not much. That's pretty much the top. I, I will agree. There's probably a few others, but it's pretty high up there. That's pretty good. I've, yeah. Yeah. I've heard it said that um, human medicine is great at dealing with anything instantaneous and terrible at dealing with chronic issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a big, uh, big topic of discussion in the aging biology field, right? We're, we're, we're all complaining I mean, about that problem. <laughs> I mean, I think that a lot of them just aren't healthy enough. They're like looking at all the cheap shortcuts when really the answer is go to the fucking gym and lift some weights. Hmm. Like nothing, nothing has as good a measurable like data as improving the length and quality of your lifespan as like exercise and a little bit of weight training. Mm -hmm. But all that's kind of um, like boring as a matter of health policy, not well supported by our current uh, like healthcare infrastructure, right? the kind of you know, behavior change interventions and stuff that can I mean, help people actually to transition to that. Choice. I, I agree. The mm. Malachian incentives are not built that way, but it's yeah. not hard. Like mm. the example I always give is the oldest people on earth that are alive are with, if you exclude places like demographic shifts, like Detroit is old, but that's just because all the young people moved away. Hmm. If you look at um, the places that live the longest, it's Japan and Greece. Mm -hmm. Specifically, people in the somewhat rural countryside, and they have incredibly similar lifestyles, which is they do a little bit of manual labor, like they have to move stuff around, keep their houses good. They uh, regularly involve themselves in nature. They eat mostly fruits and veggies with some eggs and fish occasionally. And then they eat red meat occasionally. They eat a lot when they do. It's like mm. usually a holiday. Everyone gets pork or steak. They don't eat it that often. And that's I mean, it. They live so to be you, like 90 to 100. That's you all you that's, need to do. Like The thing is that that's, that's hard for most people to do, right? It's not, it's not hard to identify as that's probably the best thing to do but for you know the average person it's a it's tricky to arrange your lifestyle such that that's so, what it is <laughs> so it starts with little decisions so like a good one is where do you choose to live i you either should choose to live somewhere in the country where you can do exercise or somewhere in the city where you can walk everywhere hmm. but the death knell of health is suburbia <laughs> Suburbia mm. kills health because it makes the cost of doing like exercise really, really high unless you have the ability to afford it and become completely isolated. It doesn't become a part of your lifestyle. It's something you have to think about. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, the next one is what do you eat? This one is actually a lot easier than people think as someone who has made a massive body transformation since like 2018 where I lost a bunch of fat and then regained a bunch of muscle, um, there are no unhealthy foods. Everyone who says that is thinking about the wrong way. You break down your foods into macros, and then your goal is to have the correct macros and to make sure your, your insulin levels don't wildly fluctuate. Doesn't matter if you're vegan or paleo or carnivore, as long as you're getting your fats, your carbs, your proteins, and a little bit of your green nutrients and veggies, um, then you can get it anywhere and just like worry about proportions. Like I don't stop myself from going to eat at fast food occasionally, hmm. but I just make it like, hey, give me the kids meal and it'll be fine. Like it still tastes good. It's still filling. It's just less. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. We've learned like vast amounts about the details of dietary science, and yet mm-hmm. we still don't seem to have a very like coherent picture. The <laughs> of only what people the recommendation I trust should be the only people I trust about dietary science are professional bodybuilders who also have PhDs. Because <laughs> they're the only That's people who because they're the only people on earth who both have to put their money where their mouth is, they have to actually practice what they preach, and they have done the work of understanding the mechanics and the per- like population percentages not to be fooled by the obvious traps. Hmm. I currently know only one company that does this, period, meh, uh, Renaissance periodization. That's hmm. it. Literally, that is their major criteria. Every single person on their staff is at least a master, if not PhD, in something like biomechanics, biochemistry, nutrition, and they're all professional athletes or bodybuilders. So hmm. they have to like put their skin in the game. Interesting. Okay. And I mean, the I'm... thing I will say is and all their advice is pretty boring, which is why I actually trust it. <laughs> now, they give you really good numbers that make mm. me feel like much more like, oh, these people know what they're talking about, but it's not exciting. Mm. Like, okay, so here is a good example of what they said. A diet is a famine period. Your body hates dieting because it is the equivalent of your ancestors being in a drought and not ha- and all the plants and animals going away. Mm. So your body freaks out and you don't want to be in that stress response. You're the hungrier you get, the more cortisol you release, and that's going to make it harder. So what they suggest is figure out how many calories a day you're already eating, and then just don't change the number of calories, just switch it to a healthier diet. Doing just that, you will lose weight. Maybe that's enough to just get to your goal. And if that's it, that's awesome. Just do that. If it's not, what they suggest is slowly lowering your uh, intake of food. So I lowered my intake of calories. I was at like 210 pounds and I was consuming after doing this for a month and following their sheet. I was like, okay, I average about 2,400 calories a day. I then switched to the sheet because I wasn't losing any more weight. The next part of their template said, okay, here's where your new meals are and the new macros. I did the math and it was like 2,200 calories, right? I did that and I they told me track your weekly weight average. You should be losing anywhere from half a pound to two pounds per week to make it stick. Hmm. Anything more than that and your body really, really doesn't like it. It's going into emergency mode. I did that for about two months, and then I stopped losing weight. I plateaued. Then they said, okay, flip to the next sheet. And then I did, and it was slightly more restrictive. Now it's down to 2,000 calories a day. And then they said, okay, after three months, you're not dieting anymore because your body is literally freaking out. Never diet for more than three months. Instead, I went from 210 pounds to 160. That's because... Everyone is somewhere on that bell curve. I am much closer to losing two pounds. There were some weeks I lost three pounds on average. Hmm. But I was super low and I was hungry and cranky. So now that you're ending this famine period, the biggest problem people have with dieting is they yo-yo back up. Hmm. So what they were like is like hunger is really the issue here. You don't want to be using your willpower to constantly be fighting your hunger response. 
you want to change your internal set point of when you feel hungry so that it matches your new body weight and activity lifestyle so that you don't have to think about this. Hmm. So the secret is I went down to 160. The last sheet said maintenance. Maintenance jumped up my calories from 2000 up to 2150, I think maybe 2200. Hmm. So I went from 210 pounds and three months later, I was 160. Maintenance put me back at 172. And I then they said, stick to this religiously for the next two months. What that simulates is, okay, the famine is over. It rained again, but hmm. your body's still not sure about the environment. So for the next two months, if you only give it this many calories, eventually your hunger set point will change. It says, hey, based on what you've been feeding me, this is the amount of calories in the environment, and this is the way I'm going to have to burn them based on activity level. Mm -hmm. And, and it changed my natural hunger level so that for years, I just coasted at 175. I didn't have to diet ever again. It mm -hmm. just worked. Right. And then when I decided to bulk up, same thing. You, By the way, an important rule they make is you must be strength training, both when you're dieting and when you're bulking. And here is why. Mm -hmm. If you're not strength training when you diet, your body will preferentially lose muscle. Hmm. So if you don't, you will lose weight, but you will get much, much weaker. Mm -hmm. If you continue to strength train, don't even try to go hard. Don't try to get stronger. Just maintain what you were doing before. What will end up happening is on average, you will lose two thirds of that weight as fat and one third as muscle. Shift when you balance. strength train... Mm -hmm. When you strength train while you're bulking, the opposite happens. You will gain weight. One third will be fat, but two thirds will be muscle. Hmm. And using this equation, and you know, it's like a five month cycle, three months to go up or down, and then two months to stabilize. Knowing your original body fat, you can come up with a plan that takes a few years, but you can get exactly the body you want. Hmm. Like I know exactly how heavy I want to be at exactly the body fat percentage, and I know approximately within six months when I will achieve it. I'd be interested to see what happens if you uh, combined that with like uh, compressing when you eat into an eight hour time window. Uh, they, they have a lot of talk about that. The yeah. biggest thing is actually make sure you eat some protein within 30 minutes of your workout. Like the most carbs you can have in your day is right after a workout or during mm. a workout and that's when you should get your most protein blast because your body it has like a window yeah what is most efficient at accepting it mm -hmm. but very little fat interestingly enough mm -hmm. as you go later towards the night you should or not towards the night but further away from your workout in the day you should increase your fats but lower your carbs and protein should actually be fairly constant from meal to meal mm. That's really yeah, the only sense. trick. Yeah. And the only other thing I would say if anyone is interested in this is they will recommend you try this protein powder called casein. And they're like, take it at night, brah. <laughs> and I was like, this is silly. I, there's no reason to do this. I was a fool and I was wrong. Here is why. <laughs> casein is like a whey protein powder, but it's a long chain protein. Mm -hmm. So your body takes longer to break it down. What you do is you make a big milkshake with it right before you go to bed, I have a chocolate flavored. I drink it. And then overnight, 
as after my workout, it's using it to repair all the muscle muscle tissue I injured during my workout. Mm -hmm. If I am telling you that the level of soreness I experienced is radically different. Like I didn't make any discovery more important than that for reducing the soreness after my workouts. And it made working out so much more tolerable in the long run. Hmm. That's uh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. A, that all sounds like a pretty good set of recommendations. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing that I think is impressive. They have a YouTube channel and they have like four, they have like an eight part series. Each part is an hour long going over all of the biochemistry and mechanics of this and why it works hmm. with Dr. Mike Isratel, one of the wild Bajans I love so much. <laughs> Yeah, he has a whole YouTube out. series on uh, how to communicate effectively as a clear-thinking person when you're ar when you're arguing, and it's effect. It's a pretty much a street epistemology YouTube series mixed with rationality, mixed with a little bit of stuff about like, hey, the medium is the message. Like how you address people on Instagram is different from how you address them in person. Uh, yeah, I have to check that out. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> I just, I, I guess I'm an evangelist for him because I've had such amazing results. By the way, mm. for our listeners, I'm not like incredible or anything, but I was, I started doing the workouts to bulk up two years ago in September. And I was, I believe, 175 at the time. I am currently 185 and I went from a, oh wait, let me look up my spreadsheet. I was at a 29% body fat, and now I am down to 18. So not only did I gain 15 pounds, I lost a bunch of fat. So the delta is actually much bigger. It's like almost a 35-pound delta. Interesting. Yeah. So I've, I've never actually, like, I've been kind of, you know, abstractly interested in this stuff because I aging biology is you know one of my areas of interest but I've never really done much experimenting with that in my actual like practical day-to-day -day because I mean I think I'm just genetically moderately lucky because I've been like 140 pounds and pretty lean since I was about 17 and that's never changed <laughs> you're I just, like my brother incredibly <laughs> stable yeah it's just like pretty solid at more or less exactly that same weight uh but i mean my, my diet's also reasonably stable i'm a a, a lacto ovo vegetarian if you want to get technical mm. <laughs> uh yeah that's uh, i believe that i the way i call that is it ain't hurting nobody eh. <laughs> but yeah. um yeah i really have enjoyed there is a lot of satisfaction that comes from weight training hmm. when you combine it with these things because it is such a tangible measurement of improvement hmm. Hmm. like a good example is okay listeners if you feel bad working out here's what it was like on my first day with my trainer he said okay david here is a five pound weight please do curls with this with one arm please do 10 and i got to eight and i couldn't do two more and i had to use my other hand to help me out <laughs> It was Interesting. pathetic. He thought I was joking. <laughs> okay, it, right. Uh, I mean, Monday I, was. I huh? do um, like just body weight stuff. I have done since my my teens. So I do you know press ups and sit ups and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's a. Uh, 
that was really bad because I'd lost all that weight, but I wasn't working out. So I just lost all this muscle mass as well. Hmm. So Monday was chest day and he was like, like we're going to go heavy today, David. We're going to see how much weight you can do with uh, five presses of the bench press. Hmm. And I maxed out at 155 pounds. Uh, I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm you're doing so some units. metric math. <laughs> yep. So. Mm -hmm. How, how much is that for our European listeners going from five pounds with one arm and not being able to do it for 10 to bench pressing 155 pounds for five? Yeah. I'm not going to do the mental arithmetic right now, but yeah, I might. that's a pretty decent change. <laughs> also, one no. of the things they never tell you about is um, beginner gains are super real. Like yeah, when you yeah. first start gaining muscle, your body will immediately respond. And for those first six months to a year, you can lose fat and gain muscle simultaneously. That will mm. never happen again in your life. But enjoy that period because you will feel amazing after three to six months. You're going to be like, holy shit. Now that slows down. And there is actually like a really well-documented tapering there. But it never entirely stops, mm. which is nice to know. Yeah, that's good. Hmm. Now I'm going to try to convert stuff because I should do this, but I haven't been doing any engineering in a long time. And now I feel bad that my metric skills are bad. <laughs> I said, do you want 2.2 pounds to the kilo? So uh, this would have been 2.2 kilos originally was five pounds. And that was 70.3 kilos for five sets of five. Hmm. That's a pretty decent lift. That's two years. Two years can get you there with even mild. Like I would take a month off. I eat cheesecake a lot. Like I think another big part of it is there is this hesitation of all for nothingism. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I've been ranting about health now for a while. Um, my question to you bringing this up is mm -hmm. given this wealth of data about how we should exercise, eat, uh, expose ourselves to certain elements and maybe take certain foods and or drugs or whatever the fuck a wheat mm -hmm. brownie is. <laughs> um, where do you think we should make the most concerted action? Because these are all trapped by bottlenecks. But I have this gut <sighs> feeling that there's probably one or two of these problems that if they were addressed would make addressing every other bottleneck easier. And that's what I am unsure of. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's never a problem. I've had a what I think of as a good idea about how to solve, <laughs> like the the issue of how to kind of just you know en engineer our lives so that that stuff is just easier for us to do, right? I mean, it's it's how do you create a a, a pit of success around doing that, right, for everyone? It's like how does it become the easy thing to do to just do that as a part of your routine um and i think it's possible to construct a routine where it is but how, how do we get everyone to a place where they manage to construct such a routine that's yeah i i, I actually I don't think know of it a lot start. like minecraft it's like you have to bootstrap your way up mm -hmm. and the important part about uh minecraft especially modded one is knowing the order of operations 
Because if you mm -hmm. go about it the wrong way, you could be wasting a lot of time and energy that later you will end up regretting. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, fuck, I should have just thought about this for another five minutes and maybe I could have saved myself days of work. Mm -hmm. So, That's a good point. yeah, I'm trying to think about this like an order of operations problem. Like you have the bottleneck of health in America, both being a reactionary or let's just say modern Western medicine is at its core reactionary to illness, not mm. preventative to do, mm. like unhealthiness. Yeah, yeah, you have you have the issue of fragile supply lines and ecology that is clearly suffering from our current system. And you have all these issues of like organization and politics. And I don't actually think the politics, like politics feels like it's actually the trap. Like you would want to fix that first, but I don't think it's actually the right call. Uh, hmm. Wherever else would we start? <laughs> uh. I mean, I think one of the things that leftists and conservatives both agree on in the modern day is politics is downstream of culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a, a good point. Um, hmm. uh, our culture is um... a cesspit of annoyingness and shallowness. <laughs> yeah, our culture is not in a great place. But I think that I mean a, a, a important part of that is I think uh, the medium in which our culture is expressed is now these technology platforms, right? And that ends up putting the culture downstream of the politics to some degree because the uh, conversation is yeah, influenced by the medium and the medium has its problems. But uh, yeah, it's always uh, trying to do the root cause analysis in all these cyclical systems where there's one thing causing another thing that loops back on itself is... is uh, it's it's you never know where to actually start to try and intervene on the problem and actually be most effective that's yeah a very difficult problem this is hmm i would love to see if there's any work by systems engineers on this because i feel mm. like systems engineers have always been the one group of engineers that i respect the most for their understanding of complexity and risk mm -hmm. yeah uh I will actually rephrase that old school systems engineers, modern systems engineers fall into the same trap that businesses do where they're like, well, things are always going to be great. So we should aim towards efficiency. But old school ones were like, no, things could go badly. What if this transformer explodes? We need to have redundancies in place. Yes. Yeah, that's. <laughs> uh, definitely the way to do it. Yeah, I mean, would look at biological systems, right? The Quite a lot of redundancy. I love the fact that I have two kidneys. It's great. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I had. On a molecular level, lots of things yes. have a backup. <laughs> I mean, even our energy, like, we shouldn't do it for a long time, but the fact that there is a Krebs cycle and we can go, like, anaerobic and just power through for brief periods of time when we've run out of air is a backup system that saves you from drowning. Yep. Yeah, it's it's such a contrast to to modern engineering practices where redundancy is like almost never there. That so much, especially in in like software engineering, so much stuff is just like really brittle. 
I think this is the reason why I have such a love for old engineering projects and why I will never, I will always think of myself at least a little bit as an engineer. Because mm. like the experience of seeing a transformer that was built within five to 10 years of them figuring out how those things worked. Mm. That's the size of a three-story building in Philadelphia that's been running for like a hundred some years. And being like, this thing still works because these men, like, they didn't have the luxury of a computer to calculate exactly the stresses and strains. So they were like, well, some back of the napkin math says maybe we should use like 10 tons of material. Ah, let's just go with 15 to be safe. Exactly. Right. Whereas like today, <laughs> yeah. And today you have a computer model that tells you you need exactly 8.5 and your boss will yell at you if you use 8.6. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a yeah. My over engineer it is my motto when it comes to building things. It's just always put in a bit more than is necessary. In fact, ideally by a substantial margin. I mean, uh, in the fan fiction sequel to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, significant digits. Hmm. Harry sees a sign above the Goblin Workshop and Goblin. He's like, "What does that say?" And then the guy translates it for him and it says, make it, break it, make it again until you cannot break it. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, this is what I want from life. If I ever own an engineering company, I'm going to literally have that as our motto. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I'm, I need to reread Significant Ditches. Actually, uh, I contemplated doing an audiobook project for it, but I never had the time. <laughs> mm. Mm. I... Without getting too far into it, I'm going to say I'm kind of disappointed by the ending. Hmm. Yeah, the, the I did like bit. most of yeah. it. Yeah. Yes. The, the first main arc was very good. I mean, it felt like exactly what would happen, hmm. which is terrifying. A world of Hermione Grangers. Like, she is the transhuman. <laughs> uh, yeah. Though I will say that even in that, they're not nearly as creative with their magic as they could be. Though, I will mm. say this, the criteria that Harry's not allowed to mess with any magic that could lead to the end of the world mm. actually explains a lot of it. Yeah, like, half like... of my ideas, I think about them afterwards, I'm like, no, there's a really good chance I would cause like a false vacuum collapse and destroy the universe. I probably shouldn't have magic. Exactly, because he's forced yeah. to operate under that very strong constraint. I can understand why that uh, why they make slightly slower progress, but uh, that might not be a bad thing. <laughs> no, it isn't. Mm. And I really would love to be a thermodynamics professor who gets magic, because like <laughs> I can't imagine anything that would break my brain more oh, no. and could also probably win me a Nobel Prize more. <laughs> like a thermodynamic theory of magic, thaumaturgical thermodynamics is, I think, the way they would describe that field. <laughs> By the way, if I ever write a short story, I need to include that as a field. Uh, that's but pretty it terrifying. Would be incredible. <laughs> you might become God. It might accidentally make you God. 
It seems like an, an, an interesting, uh, similar, um, somewhat similar concept, but um, with more Lovecraftian horror overtones in this alternative. If you, you've read The Laundry Files, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, there we go. Yeah. yeah. The computational demonology thing seems pretty analogous. Yep. <laughs> Man. Though I will say, one of the things I've always thought about is there is luck magic. There's literally luck magic. They have literal entropy manipulation. Hmm. What defines lucky? Is lucky being in an on state versus being in an off state? I mean, yeah, this is just the infinite improbability drive from... Well, (laughs) it goes further than that. I Oh, my players aren't going to listen to this. Uh, so I can just say this. So in my game, mm-hmm. there is a colony of androids, automatons, and constructed beings and intelligent items on the moon. Mm-hmm. And they are attempting to make their own sentient godlike AI out of the moon's structure. It's been like a long industrial project they've been doing below the surface. Okay. And the way they've done it is they've been entangling particles with each other using spells of like luck so that they're all interrelated and they define it as going red or blue and Uh as a result they've built a they're slowly building a quantum computer on the moon using (laughs) uh like red and blue balls and luck magic (laughs) Uh... and let's see if the players ever find out and what they'll do when they meet uh omnius (laughs) yeah well that sounds like it might be an interesting encounter Yeah, like, actually, this is one of the things I love about deconstructing fantasy. Mm. When you actually look at what they have, it's just become sci-fi again. What's Terry Pratchett's Mm. rule? Any sufficiently explained magic just becomes technology. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you have animate objects. Create awesome. You have robotics. Like, that that spell and that ritual means you have robotics. You have uh, awaken object. Cool. You have AI. Mm. Yeah, but it's... Something about universality of computation and whatnot mm-hmm. it gets you to the same spot. <laughs> well, like also, there's the same pressures. Like in my world, there are city states, and they're like the size of New York or Tokyo. Like they're mega cities mm-hmm. in a magical world. It just takes a lot of data, like management, to have a city that big. So you mm-hmm. need to start getting really complex organizational structures. And according to D and D and Pathfinder rules. Einstein was like a 16 intelligence Mm -hmm. and you can have players with a 22 (laughs) 24 even Mm. like there are people who are operating and they're an incredibly small percentage like 1.0185% of the population but even that means they're and they're like nuclear bombs because they have magic so they're incredibly influential geniuses. It makes sense that they're going to figure out clever solutions to these data management problems and come up with similar things to computation just because, like, how else do you tax people? Yeah, uh, can't really get around that other way, any other way. <laughs> mm. Though, interestingly enough, it also means that it's actually a more egalitarian society than our world because they have spells like create food and water and there are items like mm. the infinite food cauldron. So as a result, like subsistence living doesn't really exist in the cities. Everyone has a universal basic income effectively or not even that. As long as you have a place to live, all of your basic needs can be met for free. Mm -hmm. 
And that causes some weird effects in society that I've been thinking about. By the way, if you have any good ideas about how you would use magic in a surveillance state, uh, where they're going to be visiting a very bad place soon, and I was curious about mm. what a magical dictator who is actually smart would do. Ooh, that seems like an... Oof, now, okay. I should say there are some limitations. One, yep. he is not the only... He's not all-powerful in this world. Hmm. Uh, he has to trade with other cities because there are valuable resources that they have that he does not, and they trade back and forth. A side effect of that is that citizens of other cities will come to his, and he is not allowed to just blatantly abuse them or it will hmm. cause an international incident. Two, he is a very powerful, uh, draconically themed sovereign, but... um. There are like people who specialize in killing dragons. Like Pathfinder works on the uh, rock paper scissors mechanic of there's always someone who can kind of counter you. Hmm. So he does have some fears. Okay. Hmm. Uh, not sure how you might best exploit that. Um, I mean, the trouble with kind of having all that information is that if you use it too openly it exposes the fact that you have it and potentially things about how much you know that gets you into this you know loop of countermeasures right that's the problem that the british code breakers had to solve during the second world war of how do we use this intelligence without tipping off the germans we've broken our cipher their ciphers and hmm. i always thought they came up with the wrong answer to that by the way Oh. Oh yeah. The answer is induce more randomness. Hmm. Like, hmm. make them think you're just doing more random things while you secretly know exactly where they're going to be. So then they're just like, oh man, they're just tr throwing everything at the wall and they're getting lucky. And now you will have to. <clears throat> like the reason I say that is they made the horrible choices, and I don't blame them. The moral calculus is so complicated and hmm. so heart wrenching of actually allowing certain ships to go down mm. because they didn't want to let the Germans know that they had broken the code. But if they had just been more aggressive in that area in general and in all the areas, like three of them at the same time, then they could have obscured that. And like other things you can do is make it known to the Germans that there is like a rat on the inside. And so they don't suspect the machines, but they start doing an investigation of their people. Like, mm -hmm. there are ways you could have approached this differently. And I'm playing Monday morning quarterback for one of the most complicated and horrible decisions anyone can be faced with. But it always got under my skin. Uh, have you heard the story of Operation Mintmeat? No. Okay. Uh, I won't go into it, but look that up. <laughs> Mincemeat? Mincemeat. Operation Mincemeat. Uh, that is it, terrifying as a name. It's yeah, it's a good name, but um, yeah, they they were pretty into the whole. Uh, we will find a way of finding other ways that we could have got this intelligence. <laughs> I respect this level of thinking. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is just an idea I learned from reading the Wheel Wheel of Time books and from the mm -hmm. Dosidai experiment. So both of them taught me, what do you do when you're facing an opponent who is more powerful and more intelligent than you? Mm -hmm. 
if the opponent has perfect observational skills, like in the Dosidai experiment, what you need to do is devise your plan of how you're going to defeat them. Figure out every step of that plan and what you need to set it up. Then you need to initiate a bunch of smaller plans that all seem equally plausible on their own, but which each have a side effect of preparing for the big plan. Mm. It's a very hard line to play, mm. but it, it will work because most people won't model you well enough to realize you're thinking three levels deep. As they say in Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality, most people are only operating on two levels, and this is like three or four deep. Mm -hmm. And the other one is from The Wheel of Time, which is if you're playing chess against a chess grandmaster and you know your life is on the line, punch him in the face and run. Like, don't play fucking chess against them. <laughs> Do something that breaks, like, change the context of the game. Don't play their game. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah can't play by that set of rules if you're going to lose under that set of rules. <laughs> hmm. By the way, Dose, as you can tell, while I love Dune, and I think the Dune series is my favorite series of all time, a lot of Frank Herbert's work has like penetrated my brain into like changing how I think pretty severely. And this is Dose that I experience like near the top of that list. Okay. By the way, if you ever want to read what he thinks about AI, he wrote a book about it called Destination Void. Interesting. Okay. I've never read much Herbert beyond the uh, the Dune and I think a couple of its sequels, but uh, yeah, I'll have to expand my uh, knowledge of his body of work. He, um, his the basic concept is pretty hilarious. Um, there is a giant ship that looks like an egg, and it has a bunch of humans who are clones. Who have been raised on the moon so their immune systems are isolated and clean hmm. um and they have a bunch of fetuses and they're being sent to colonize a planet around alpha centauri interesting the ship they're on is so complicated that it could not run and there is no artificial intelligence so what they they've done a horrible thing where they find a child who normally would die but their brain is fine and they brain in a tank them to the ship so that their neurology accepts it hmm. and they have like three backups well as they go into space once they're like near jupiter's or orbit the first one goes crazy and so the ship like the crew uh -huh. has to wake up hmm. and then they put in the other two and they last a shorter and shorter time and the crew eventually realizes that they're not actually sent on a colony mission you see about 50 years earlier, some researchers on an isolated island tried to make an AI and they succeeded and it immediately screamed. Nobody knew what happened, something big, and then the entire island disappeared. So everyone is terrified of AI. So they wanted to do AI research with the most brilliant people on Earth without the risk of anything happening to Earth. So they put them on this egg and sent them into space with all the tools and equipment necessary and an intensely high pressure situation. Because if huh. they don't have an AI to run the ship, they're all going to die. <laughs> that sounds like a good premise. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, a crazy good idea. How did I and... not hear about these other... <laughs> Dune uh, is just so monumentally famous because yeah. it's influenced so many other things that I'm not yeah, surprised, yeah. but like... 
the rest of Frank Herbert's work is insane. Mm. Like the dude is a madman. Interesting. He has an entire set of short stories uh, that I read once, and one of them is about a society. It's like you can see the glimmers of Dune mm. in it because it's about a like a place in Vermont where it's like a perfect village and nobody really understands it. And so an FBI investigator goes there and he finds out that there's a weird mold growing on the cheese that they grow in the caverns there. And it's made everyone psionically connected. And I'm like, you can see the first <laughs> glimmers of his ideas of Dune there. And I'm like, awesome. oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's... I like the psionic cheese mold. That's definitely going on my list. So it's kind of surprising for me some of the stuff in the science fiction canon is just not more readily known like before uh before i started my my other podcast the octavia butler's stuff was completely unknown to me pretty much uh and that's like it should be essential reading for anyone who does the biological sciences the xenogenesis trilogy it's yeah wait what did octavia butler write again that sounds so familiar uh, so the the Xenogenesis trilogy Silent. is the one that my podcast focuses on. That's mm. um, also known as Lilith's Brood. It was re-released as like a collection of three novels. I have um, not read that. And then uh, she wrote the Parables books: the Parable of the Sower, the Parable of the Talents. Um, the uh, what's the title of that one? It's a, a famous. Um, I've read it and it's eluding me. Uh, Kindred? Kindred, I think. That's also very well known. Ah, okay. Yeah. I have a friend who recommended Kindred to me. Mm. I've never read anything by Octavia Butler. Mm. I mean, my my favorite of her works so far is definitely the Xenogenesis trilogy. Uh, she has another one that's kind of like uh, vampire-related, I think. Um, uh, what's the name of that one? The the Is it The Patternists? I think it might be The Patternists. Uh but uh, I yeah, mean, that's... why why do you think she's so important to read as a bioscientist? So the the Xenogenesis uh, trilogy, I think, is uh, one of the best representations of the sort of implications of bioengineering for uh, society uh, in fiction. Right? She actually does biology well, which almost no one does in science fiction, if you ask me. Uh, I agree. It's yeah, that, most I'm... people are either too fantastical and I'm like, these are just superpowers that don't mm -hmm. make sense or yeah. they're actually too conservative. And I'm mm -hmm. like, no, nature actually has answers that are much more ridiculous than what you're positing. Yeah. She strikes a great balance and uh, it, it's, it's, it's very, um, uh, it's, it has a very visceral feel to it. Right. And it really engages with kind of the, like the personal nature of like, reproductive biology and changing the way that your uh, the, the genes of your children are inherited and that kind of stuff right it's it's a really um interesting exploration of that subject i mean if uh, i could put a gene drive in my own genes that would affect my children and grandchildren indefinitely hmm. i would try to find out what complex of genes creates the uh quality for how do i say this there is probably a gene complex that is strongly responsible for parts of my personality. Mm. And what I would like is to increase the conscientiousness one mm. slowly mm. over time, because I scored a 2% on my conscientiousness big five test. 
literally they yeah. told me if i was in a room with a hundred people i should assume that 97 of them are more organized than me <laughs> very yeah, painful to me no, I'd, I'd like to increment and, my support score on that a little bit as well <laughs> yeah so my conscientiousness would be nice to slowly update because like <laughs> conscientiousness is actually the number one indicator of life success iq is number two mm-hmm and I feel like I have fallen into that trap where I know I'm not a dumb guy and I can coast a lot of times on my intelligence, but it has built bad habits I've had to undo as an adult. Yeah. Know the feeling. <laughs> if I could do anything for my children's children physically, hmm. here's a problem. I know enough about biology to say anything I'd want to do is going to be bad if you take it indefinitely. Oh. Like there, there has to be a limit or you're going to end up with cancer or something terrible. Hmm. So it's really a question of how do I put something in my DNA that will be gene drived that will turn off at the appropriate generation? Hmm. Okay. Interesting like, problem. I mean, yeah, it, it kind of like I could make what myself you need is a feedback loop, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you need something which can modulate the the levels of whatever it is that you're uh, paying attention or trying to modify. I mean, one yeah, of the... like, of course, I want my kids to be stronger, faster and smarter than me. But I know if you take any of those to the extreme, you either get like muscles that are so strong, they crush your bones from the inside, which actually happens to some people, which is horrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get people like Andre the Giant, who literally are like seven and a half, eight feet tall, but who die at age like 45 because their hearts can't support that. Or you get people who are massively intelligent. And unfortunately, depression is highly correlated with intelligence. And so is suicide. So mm. like, you can't let any of these things go too far, unfortunately. And one of the other interesting features of this is kind of how um, your genetics and your mimetics become intermingled once you have Absolutely. bioengineering technology, right? Your culture affects your genes, your genes affect your culture in a way that uh, up till now we haven't had right because we can consciously reflect on our genetics and alter them to reflect our cultural values we don't have you ever read the comic transmetropolitan uh no oh my god so the basic concept is it is a cyberpunk slash biopunk future mm-hmm. like a thousand years and a crazy journalist who's based on uh hunter s thompson has come back into the city, which is the heart of the new bio cyberpunk world mm-hmm. as a journalist to explore. His name is spider Jerusalem. <laughs> um, Good name. But they talk a lot about this. Like one of the things that he experiences is they run into aliens and it turns out the aliens had been in like a cryo ship, mm. the, like an arc ship. And their technology, while their material science was way better than ours, we were actually better than them at literally everything else. Mm. So they ended up kind of being like a second class citizens on our planets and refugees because they had nothing to contribute. Interesting. They started selling parts of their DNA as like designer drugs and people would inject it and change their DNA to become more alien for brief periods of time and then take another injection to undo the genetic effects as like a tripping effect because their like neurology would vastly change over the course of weeks. That feels like kind of the inverse scenario of the Xenogenesis books in some ways. (laughs) 
it's wild as a series. By the way, one of the first things that happens is when he moves back into the city, everyone has a nano fabricator in their house and they all have AIs. But the nano fabricators realized they could make microchips that would go back into them. And huh. so his nano fabricator was bored. So it made a chip that simulated the experience of being on LSD and then installed it into itself. And so he's like, God damn it, my fabricator's on drugs again. <laughs> and so every time he asks it to 3D print him something, it does print out what he wants, but it looks insane. And he's like, God damn it. <laughs> uh, like his okay. most iconic Correct. thing is he has these sunglasses where it's a red circle and a green square. And like he gets them in the first issue. He's like, what the fuck is this? And his like <laughs> the printer just laughs at him. <laughs> Which honestly, I could totally imagine happening. Mm -hmm. There's like all these, they talk about how gray goose scenarios have happened. Like someone hack will hack their uh, constructors nanites and make mm -hmm. them into a gray goo that will attack. And they have to like send in SWAT teams with EMP foam guns to deal with it. <laughs> and how it's like a, like a mildly annoying issue, but it like actually will kill like everyone in a building at once. It's like a fire hazard. Uh, but the funny thing is that like fires don't series. happen. Yeah. <laughs> It's a wild thing to read, and it's extra great because he's he's a critic of this place so hard. Like, he hates his culture. Hmm. And so as an outsider, he can see some of what works and some of what doesn't. By the way, one of his pet cat is named Ruskamov, and he's a mutant with three eyes and two mouths. And they have anti-cancer pills. So... <laughs> because they have anti-cancer pills now smoking became back in fashion because now there's no downside so he smokes like a carton a carton of cigarettes every three days oh, and his cat with two mouths smokes two cartons of unfiltered russians every day and he just what? gives it the anti-cancer pills and then they just keep going with their lives <laughs> and i'm like i guess that kind of makes um, okay. sense like honestly i think that would happen it feels I like mean, an expensive habit for the cat <laughs> he's a rich writer he can afford it a rich um, writer what what economic situation of is this world <laughs> um he's like the equivalent of hunter s thompson and brandon sanderson in his world mixed together okay. but he also hates the media which is why he's so isolated um <laughs> but think about it like this do you know what country has the best chance of creating a vaccine for lung cancer no el cubano <laughs> yeah cuba hmm. has probably okay. successfully made a vaccine for lung cancer on their own isolated from the global system because everyone fucking smokes cuban cigars it was actually one of their major causes of death lung and mouth cancer were huge issues hmm. like way more of a public health issue hmm. than they are in the united states or anywhere else so their research had to go there of cigars was I didn't know what the lung cancer levels were, but I thought that like the um, esophageal and and uh, mouth cancers were a lot more of a risk for. Uh, they are, cigar. they are, but yeah. still, people still end up inhaling it. So they had higher than lung average tube. lung cancer levels and way worse mouth cancer levels. And mm. yeah, they worked on a vaccine that was probably going to be effective against lung cancer. If I ever, honestly. If I have the ability to travel there in the next five years, I'm probably going to go there and try to take it just because mm -hmm. I had I was a pack a day smoker for about four years. I vape now and I have cut down significantly. But like you do a lot of damage during that time. I'm like, mm -hmm. I should hedge my bets.
Is it a particular subtype of lung cancer that it's most effective against or like small cell or something? I'm honestly not sure about the research, but mm. you know what? It doesn't hurt me. Mm. Uh, like from a risk standpoint, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it doesn't mm. hurt me to try anyway. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you saw those results about that uh, clinical trial they did where 100% of the patients had like a complete, like their cancer didn't just go into remission. There was no signs it was even there. Which um, this was a study that was just published. It was a rectal cancer study, and it was like eighteen patients, but it had one hundred percent success rate. Okay, I forget about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked into it, and you know, with a study this mm. small, don't trust anything. The mm. variance is too high, but causality, uh, correlation does not imply causation, but it does sure point and wink suggestively. <laughs> And yeah, when if you have a hundred percent success rate, even if it's only eighteen people, that's still insane that's in medical good. science yeah. in anything <laughs> in biology. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, hmm. yeah. So I think I think we are genuinely on the cusp of the cancer fixing revolution. We've been trying to do it since like two thousand or nineteen ninety nine, whenever we fixed the human genome project. And just like everything else, like aerospace, there's like a 20 to 30 year lag time where the hype curve is wrong and the mm -hmm. people see the potential because of science fiction, but they overestimate how quickly we can do it and underestimate the unknown hurdles and complexities along the way. Yeah, yeah. But as a side effect of that, those unknown complexities, that friction we didn't expect actually leads to derivative discoveries that are more important in the long run mm -hmm. i mean and like, so like the, we're about to hit that point the sort of like universal panacea cure thing is not like anytime soon happen. but i think we're going to see a definite like uptick in the the you know the next generation cancer therapies being much more successful than they have been in the next few years i mean I'm going to mention something personal in my family that's kind of horrifying. May, did I mention this last time about my cousin, Brittany? Uh, I don't believe so. So my cousin, Brittany, is a lovely woman. And unfortunately, she has been fighting cancer on and off for about five years now. Hmm. And it's been really rough. But Brittany and her uh, husband, William, are both pharmacists who work at Hershey Medical, so like literally mm. one of the best hospitals in the United States, if not the best in the one of the best in the world. So they have mm. an amazing insurance plan and access to the best healthcare possible. Mm. And she and I were talking about survival rates and we looked it up and 10 years ago, she would be dead. Yeah. Like no, no questions asked. The survival rate, the five-year survival rate out from her type of cancer was like below 1%. Hmm. now it's like 40 but yeah. here's the thing that 40 is not equally distributed because it's among the poor and the rich and hmm. as a, like an aggregate because she's not wealthy but because she has access to literally the best medical care she's effectively right on the edge of that like longevity escape velocity do you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah like yeah. she's always getting the newest experimental therapies right when they would come out or as early as feasibly safe mm. and so as a result even though her family has been in this terrified state for five years she still goes to work she still looks fine mm. she has to be extra safe because she's effectively immunocompromised all the time mm -hmm. but like it's not eating into her and it's like so weird to meet someone in their life who's right on that edge like she is 
literally surviving right now simply because of her situation. She is right on the other side of the medical event horizon. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh I I I know of a, quite a few stories like that. And that is a general pattern in like cancer care right now. We've gotten really quite good at some of the sort of compound treatment regimens where, you know, we're mixing bits of the new immunotherapies with some of the conventional uh, chemotherapies and stuff and you know actually figuring out you know dialing in what the best treatment regimens are for particular cancer subtypes and you know knowing which people have which subtypes and stuff it's like couple that with some of the new immunotherapies and vaccine stuff and i think yeah we're on a good trajectory wildly changing and like I don't know how to t- I don't know how to feel about Brittany because if it must feel like she's on a tightrope. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's still a very terrifying Anxi- prospect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, at the same time, I don't know how to tell her. Like, Brittany, I know this seems horrible for me to say, but you are incredibly lucky because if this had been five years ago, or if this had been ten years ago, you mm. would have died already, most likely, and you yeah. would have lost those years that you got with your kids. Like mm-hmm. the medical science has given you years of life to form memories with your family and to appreciate time with them. And that is like the tangible effect of it. Yeah. And it's really awesome. And I just like, I don't know, I have a lot of mixed emotions about it. Like it's one thing to know it intellectually, because I've been studying Aubrey de Grey and like longevity escape velocity for years. Mm-hmm. And then another to witness it in my life personally and be like, oh, this is the implications of this research. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's uh, like encouraging, I guess. Very. <laughs> I suppose it might be a bit like um, having been around at the time of uh, you know, inoculations becoming more widespread, right? It's seeing people who would have died of childhood diseases living and yes. getting a lot more from it. Like n- now we're in an, uh, in a, another era where there's similar kind of progress on many of, many of these kind of, uh, especially cancer stuff. Yeah. I mean, what really scares me is Peter Zion shows that we're going to have a de-internationalization and a de-industrialization in a lot of parts of the world in the next decade as population collapse combines with like economic collapse combines with environmental collapse. Hmm. And the sad thing about that is a lot of places are going to go back to lignite coal because it's the only available fuel source in their countries and they won't be able to rely on international shipping of volatile and expensive things like oil. So if that's the case, any medical breakthroughs we make to help people improve their lives have to be incredibly low energy cost. I'm I'm still kind of holding out hope for more nuclear fusion. stuff. Not fusion, I'm hoping... just just SMRs, basically small modular reactors. Wait, did I tell you about what Matt Freeman told me about fusion? Uh, no. Okay, so me and Matt Freeman were talking about this thing. And he was telling me about a crank who may have made an amazing discovery. Okay. So there's, I will find the video from Matt today and I will send it to you and hopefully we'll put in the show notes. But there's this dude who doesn't believe the Big Bang happened. And he has this. We discussed this last time. Yeah. Yeah, this dude. (laughs) Dense Plasma Focus. um, Lawrenceville Plasma Physics is the company. I forget his name. Yeah, the Toroid dude. Okay, so it was you, not Matt. But I actually think that that guy's probably onto something, and I think scaling his work up will probably be the way we finally get it to function, because it's so 
cleverly simple. I mean, it it's still like I, I, it's so far from industrial process that's like scalable by comparison with the small modular reactors. And the supply chain for that stuff is not that complicated. Because you know what? A... That, that is actually a very convincing point that will change yeah. my mind because supply chains, I think you could get convinced people to do the work of scaling it up, hmm. but supply chains and especially allowing them to be shipped around will make hmm. a big difference. Yeah. And like some of the people Actually, who work on that would on... be a great charity. Hmm? That would be an amazing charity slash investment firm. You buy modular nuclear reactors to power like cities and places that are using coal, hmm. and uh, give it to them, and then figure out the cost efficiency differential. And just like solar panels from Solar City, they just keep paying they would what they would have paid for coal. And you get paid in the differential, and then once it's paid itself off, they just have a fusion reactor. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good prospect. Yeah. But from the perspective of like setting one of these things up, like there are SMR designs that will be like I, don't know, I forget exactly what the output, but something on the order of like you know 100 megawatt small scale plant that you can bury in the ground, and it will continue to output that same thing with like two services for the next 20 years very low yeah. intervention right that it gets you a lot of the way to like like you know there's not a lot of regular stuff that you have to do to keep that running right and there's the because of the insane density of the fuel right there's not like this problem of all these complicated supply chains of ensuring that it has to get there just in time right as, as long as you have a little bit of fuel to refresh it every and i 10 years or so you can keep the thing going i mean that's not even talking about having one or two breeder plants that create more fuel mm -hmm. yeah and there are people so working you... on breeders right there's yeah. um uh one of the companies has a, a sodium cooled breeder fast reactor um westinghouse has a lead cooled fast breeder there's there's a lot of interesting stuff in that space uh, I'm, I'm much more optimistic uh, about <laughs> nuclear developments than I was. <laughs> uh, Honestly, I am too. I'm going in a different direction. I think we're going to crack the fusion problem in the next decade, and that will change everything. But honestly, hmm. even if we, like, I've seen the math, even just getting, like, what you're talking about, or thorium reactors, or just, like, mm -hmm. fixing up and using modern designs on old reactors would get us to an en energy parity point where decarbonizing the atmosphere will actually be feasible because it's yeah. just an energy constraint. We know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the nuclear stuff gets us over that hump. Fusion would be a nice bonus, but I think the conventional nuclear approach with modern reactor designs is probably enough to, like, at the very least, uh, stop the, the lignite coal problem. <laughs> Um, no. my solution is actually a little bit simpler. Mm -hmm. So all these coal factories are going to be outputting a huge amount of like fumes, mm. but most of it's carbon products. Mm. And I have seen plants where they funnel that back through and they pump it into ponds with algae mm. and the algae is able to act as a carbon sink. So it never enters the atmosphere. And instead they have these green tanks. Mm. 
And I know that they've been working on making biofuels from algaes. Um, so you could effectively get more bang for your buck out of the coal by turning that dirty energy back into a biofuel by feeding it into an algae, like turn the coal into energy and the smoke into biofuel. And then you can mm. get that again. And that would burn as a cleaner thing. Like one of the things people don't talk about is 40% of the energy uh, or the carbon reduction in the United States has not been solar panels or green energy. It's been switching from oil to gas because mm -hmm. gas yep. burns cleaner. And also, it's just a much more efficient um, process, right? If you're if you're burning a gas turbine to generate electricity, mm -hmm. it's no, there's no additional um, like uh, heat exchange, thermo loop. pressure yeah, exactly. issues. Yeah. It's just direct. So, yeah, so uh, fundamentally more efficient. What I would love to see, and maybe this will be my project as a biotech company that works on genetically engineering an algae that is able to capture as much of the carbon dioxide like fumes that are pumped into the water as possible hmm. and can be processed as easily as possible into a biofuel because we might get electric planes we might get hmm. or i'm sorry we might get electric cars and electric trains but i don't think we will ever get big electric planes or yeah. big electric uh like tankers or rockets Those will have to rely <laughs> huh or uh rocketry <laughs> Uh, hey, we just need one space elevator and okay, that gets yeah, solved. Yeah, but, yeah, I'm sure. but like those other ones, I think they're just not the fuel density, no matter how I look at the battery tech. Hmm. But if we could create a carbon neutral fuel source using algae, like that would be pretty cool. Like jet fuel made out of algae. We'd yeah. probably have to use like huge, huge amounts of it to purify enough. But fuck, that's hmm. all oil was originally. <laughs> algae that just got compressed over time. Yeah, I, pe people have been trying to do that for years now but uh and I don't, yeah, there's I don't a know lot the of energy bottlenecks yeah yeah it's been annoying for me because the thing i'm annoyed about this research hmm. is they seem to be worrying about the bottleneck seems to be that you need sunlight in order to metabolize the process yeah because a lot of them are photosynthetic hmm. but we know for a fact that there are fungi that are not photosynthetic, but are able to do the same thing hmm. with uh, hydrocarbons. So why are we not looking at them as inspiration and maybe copying some of that genome? Because fungi genome is really weird and different, mm -hmm. but there are parts of it that are incredibly compatible with like plant genetics. There's also parts that are incredibly compatible with animal genetics, which is deeply mm. uncomfortable, but that's something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're more closely uh, related to us. <laughs> mm. Interesting. Yeah, like yeah. a mushroom is just an inside-out human is one of the ways I've heard it described. <laughs> like they excrete their stomach acid into the environment instead of consuming it into their body, but they do pretty much the same thing. Mm. But also kind of at the molecular level there. Yes. Um, biochemistry and uh, genetic machinery is a bit more akin to us. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. I Every time people hear I like mushrooms, they assume it's because of my love of psychedelics. And that definitely doesn't hurt. But like the truth is they are just like mushrooms are the closest thing i've said this before and i'll mm. say it again they are the closest thing to convincing me of panspermia 
They are just so <laughs> weird. Like octopi are less weird to me than a mushroom is. <laughs> and the fact that I'm yeah. more closely related genetically to a mushroom doesn't make it more comfortable. <laughs> it makes it less comfortable for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're uh, like their biosynthetic uh, capabilities and their just the like general organic chemistry prowess when it comes to crafting all kinds of weird and wonderful complicated organic molecules is unrivaled anywhere else in biology yeah i want to use them for a lot of bioremediation hmm. uh paul stamet the uh pie yeah. piper of modern yeah he talked about how he used it for what's it called like a he got a uh wheelbarrow and covered it with spores and let it ferment and they had two others and the wheelbarrow was full of like old tarry gravel mm. and then let it fruit and then mm -hmm. the other one they like spread some seeds on and like it was wild because what they discovered is that the mushrooms were able to convert the hydrocarbons from the tar into safe hydrocarbons those attracted insects the insects started eating the mushrooms this attracted birds the birds who ate the insects pooped out seeds. And now because of all the rotting matter, because of all the mushrooms, there is actually like a low level of soil there. So it started sprouting. And then the roots of those mixed with the mycelial network that is formed that is like naturally starting to form on it. And it started to like eat away into the actual tar. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think it was, it was, uh, um back in the carboniferous era i forget exactly um but mm -hmm. when, when we had the very high oxygen content in the atmosphere because so much carbon was trapped in the trees and you know the fungi invented the ability to to digest lignin and then you know we have our modern atmospheric composition as a result <laughs> with a slightly higher carbon content so no more um like two foot wide dragonflies we can thank the fungi for that which <laughs> probably a good thing i mean i like the fact that there was a brief period in time where we only had bushes and then like 12 foot tall mushrooms <laughs> hmm. like if that's not an alien landscape i don't know what is like if i walk that's one of the things i love about hiking in pennsylvania there are parts of pennsylvania's like area the old growth forests, and there mm. aren't very many left because most of it was logged mm. but parts of the old growth forests don't have any grass it's only ferns and i was mm. like grass is a modern evolutionary feature this is pretty much as close as i will feel to like living in a prehistoric time yeah like it feels ancient and i love the appalachians because they're the oldest mountains on earth uh interesting yep i didn't know they they're were the actually oldest. the same they're actually the same mountain chain that goes through Ireland, Scotland, and the UK in Pangaea uh, times. It was hmm. the same mountain chain, and then it got split apart. That's why when they sent the Irish here and they went to the Appalachian Mountains, they're like, this feels oddly like home. Hmm. They were like, this feels very uncomfortably similar and why they adapted so quickly. The mountains in, in Ireland and Scotland, like they actually feel older than it, the mountains on the continent in Europe, right? the you can see the erosion pattern of how much like the the time is just like visible in the the shape of the mountains it's it's great I one yeah you need to come to the east coast and see the appalachians it's the exact same experience i call mm. them the bones of the earth 
And mm. then like you go to the Rocky Mountains, like which is the the Alps is in Europe are probably the closest comparison. Yeah, yeah. And they're beautiful and majestic, but they feel young. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they They've feel like they're just edges. popping up. Yeah. yeah. And whereas like the here is my favorite part about describing how old the Appalachians are. There are no fossils in the oldest parts of the Appalachians because they were there before bones evolved. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Like that's that's the way bones didn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, puts the uh, the history of life on Earth in perspective. <laughs> also, every once in a while, you'll just be hiking, and I'm sure you have this experience in the British Isles as well, and you'll just be like. What's this? Oh, it's a fossil. That's weird. Like, it just old things are everywhere. Mm, just present, yeah. I mean, there's not... Uh, yeah, I've encountered one or two fossils, um, but there's not a huge number in many of the places where I've walked, at least that are kind of out in the, the open. Maybe they've uh, attracted too much attention from people. And <laughs> they've it's true, but the them, idea but, of like yeah. anyone going on a hike and finding a fossil is an interesting story, but it's mm. not like unusual in the oh, sense yeah. that it would elicit like a news article about mm -hmm. it. But that does happen in lots of parts of the world because they just yeah. don't have any history. Mm -hmm. oh. But it is getting late and it I is. think we should wrap up for today. <laughs> Listeners, thank you very much. And we hope you have a good time. Check out more of our work and our next workshop on emergency preparedness and how you guys can create your own permanent culture, at least get ready for when this one collapses, <laughs> at theguildoftherose.org. This was David. This was Richard. And we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.